like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Though you're deep in blue Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, we'll be beginning our look at the works of of 1965 we had just finished a fairly long series on 64 there was i think eight short stories and and four novels so we've been in 64 for a while so it's kind of nice to to feel that progress of of time to feel that we're 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 moving step by step to the completion of this this analysis of of the works of philip k dick but anyways what do we look what do we have in 1964 sorry 1965 well the first uh book we want to look at is is Dr. Blood Money. And we'll follow Dr. Blood Money with another novel, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. And I think that's it. That's it for 1965. Um, so we'll jump right from there to some the novels of 1966, which we'll look at uh, Lies, Inc. and The Crack in Space. Lies, Inc. was actually published not till the 80s, but it's based on a sh- novella published in 66 called The Unteleported Man. So I'll just I'll just do Lies, Inc. at that point. So anyways, um, Dr. Blood Money. Uh, this, the, the full name for this book is actually Dr. Blood Money or How We Got Along After the Bomb. It's, it was published or it was intended to be published partially as a short story as well called The Martian Odyssey. But that was just kind of an edited down version of Dr. Blood Money that was sent to the editor, never actually published until the collective stories were put together. So that's, um, I think I talked about that in the short story series from, from 64. So what is this novel about? Well, in some ways it, it carries on a lot of the themes Dick was obsessing about in the 19, 1964, such as uh, mental illness in particular. There's a lot of issues of mental illness and there's a lot of, we get that same kind of feeling that kind of everyone's mentally ill, the same way we got in The Clans of the Elephant Moon and to a lesser degree, the simulacrum. Um, in fact, one of the main characters in Dr. Blood Meaning has a delusional kind of mental illness that's very similar to that of, of um, congrosion in, in the simulacrum. So that's, that's kind of followed through. But Dick's still doing a lot of new things here. There's, it's actually quite a fresh novel. It's, it's a post-apocalyptic tale, obviously. And I think that's one reason people go to this is kind of this is Dick's effort at a post-apocalyptic world but in a lot of ways it doesn't feel post-apocalyptic it it feels kind of nice it you know what we're used to seeing in an apocalyptic novel is is the world collapses and then everyone's like at each other's throats and it's violent and horrific and yeah there's horror in the novel most of the human population is apparently destroyed there's only this handful of survivors but the way they're able to rebuild community the way not everyone is at war there are conflicts but it's not as brutal as something you see even in like The Walking Dead or just the kind of the post-apocalyptic tales we're used to. It, that's not here. It's, it's almost a utopian vision of what life would be like after the fall of civilization. There's even one moment where a character ponders, 
you know, how bad things used to be before the war and how things are actually kind of improving now that all the bad structures. It's kind of a clean slate and we're left with just kind of baseline humanity. And that succeeds, that prospers. And, and I think this is, this novel is in many ways Dick's, one of Dick's celebrations of really the human spirit and human capacity and empathy. And, and you know, it, it's not so bleak despite, you know, being about the end of the world and the end of the civilization. It's, it's very, very fascinating how Dick kind of comes out as the optimist in, in the tale about the end of the world. Um, that's one reason I, I like this novel a lot. It's, it's got some problems, and we'll, we'll talk about those problems as we go through this novel. As I did before with previous novels, the last few novels, I'm going to do this as a one-off extended episode. So, you know, if you can't listen to this all now, you know, just, just come back and listen to it in parts when you, when you have the time. It's just because I'm living in China now, so it's easier for me to... I'm working full time, so it's easier for me to just sit down like, and do one of these in a weekend, rather you know, on a, on a one day, rather than five or six episodes over the course of, of a few weeks. Um, just and it'll help us get through this series a little bit quicker, I suppose. Um, so we don't get too bogged down in this. There's a lot of novels coming up, so if I find a quicker way of doing it, that's better. So I'm going to do this as a one-off episode, um, but let me know if you, if you prefer the breaking it up into small bits, you know, I'll, I'll reconsider. But unless someone says otherwise, I'll just go ahead and, and put all my thoughts out into, into one, long, one long episode. Well, anyways, in addition to this overall optimistic view of the end of the world and, and the triumph of community over, I guess, um, maliciousness and, and pettiness and and, and isolation is our themes of I think I think the titular character Dr. Blood Money um, Bluthgeld is his is his name it's just Blood Money the German of Blood Money uh, he's a character who I think is a classical prototypical technocrat who thinks he has the solutions to all things in the world and his particular mental illness is obsession and paranoia that everyone is kind of watching him but at the same time he has a belief that he can solve all the world's problems. So it, it's it's kind of odd to, the one hand, be so arrogant to think one can fix the world and be the center of everything that happens in the universe, and at the same time be anxious when other people talk about you. I, I think when we see characters or people in positions of power, especially from technocratic fields, you know they, they they're so important for our economy and our world, and they control so much of the technology that that we have around us. They really are the micromanagers of, of our world, and yet at the same time, they're, they're very hesitant to be investigated or to be oversaw by governments or to be regulated. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating that Dick kind of is able to encapsulate that whole ethos, the ethos of the technocrat into one, one character, uh, uh, Dr. Blood Money. And I, I think that it's a, it's the title on the that's the character on the title. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as we read this novel, to remember that. Dick is, is making him the central figure. He's not making some of the other characters like Hoppy Harrigan or Stuart McConshee. These are the characters that are, that are kind of the main ones, if you think about it. Um, what's that other woman? Um, Bonnie Keller. I mean, these are, these are central characters really to the story, much more so than Dr. Blood Money. So it's, for me, it's really the tension between kind of the bottom-up that's the heart of the story, the tension between the bottom-up, collective, cooperative, social organization that we see in this small town now. I mean, it's used to be like a suburb of 
out in California somewhere. It's West Marin. But now after the war, it's just basically a village that comes together, um, builds something new, right? And even a character out in space becomes part of that rebuilding effort. That triumphs over efforts of the technocratic people, the people who want to dominate the system or to be on top of it. They fail. And what's, what we're left with is this is solidarity and it, it's really really beautifully done um, despite whatever flaws this novel has i love that about the story and i find it so refreshing when we're just beat over the head again and again you know month after month about like how bad the future is going to be i mean that's all we get from science fiction nowadays is this bleak miserable stuff we, we don't have utopia anymore and the fact that we get a utopia in a post-apocalyptic novel i think is is important and that, that that's the significance of dr blood money for me um, so as always, I'm going to go through it uh, chapter by chapter and then come back and give my final thoughts about, you know, the themes and, and maybe talk a little bit more about some of the characters or, or the things that are going on. Um, now, oh, one more thing to say, though. I'm going to, you know, talk about these chapters in order, but there's one chapter. And if you've read this novel, you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's one chapter here. It's chapter four. That's out of order. Now, I don't know if in the Library of America version they fixed this. I know they kind of like the authenticity of the historical text, so I doubt they, they fixed it, but it might be mentioned in the notes. It's, it's clearly out of order. It's chapter four. It should be, I think, chapter seven, maybe chapter eight. I'm, I'm not quite sure where it would go. Um, Bonnie Killer's kids are introduced for the first time uh, in that chapter. Clearly, they're being introduced for the first time, so it would be before any other mention of those characters. But it's, it's out of place in the way this is published. And I don't know why any publisher hasn't fixed this or mentioned it. I've not seen it. I even Googled it. And I haven't found anyone really talking about this. But I guess if you take it as like a, fla like a flash forward, like a Quentin Tarantino kind of out of order storytelling, maybe. But there's no reason for it. It doesn't make any sense that this particular chapter would be out of place here. And there's no callback to it. You know, like in Martian Time Slip, things are foreshadowed. But it's part of the story, right? Here, it's just a whole chapter is out of order. And it's confusing if you are just reading it. You don't know what's going on. And then it's clearly after the war. And, you know, the characters have had things happen to them that, that are referenced later. Like Walt Dangerfield, he's the character up in the satellite, right? He become like the global disc jockey. His wife had died sometime after the war begins, but here she's, she's, she's dead already before like she actually dies in the, in the text or mention is made of, the, of, of his wife dying. So it's, it's obvious there's no reason this chapter four should be where it is. It should have been fixed. Dick or an editor or a publisher should have caught it. I don't know who made the mistake. Or if Dick was intending this, you know, it doesn't work. Whatever the intention was, it doesn't work. But I, I think it's a mistake that was never fixed. And I don't know why it hasn't been. So if anyone has an answer to this, any Dick scholars out there who have come across this and have an answer to this, please let me know. I, I, again, I can't find any good reason for it to be this chapter to be out of order other than someone made a mistake. So anyways, with that, uh, that proviso, I'm going to go um, into, into the novel, starting with chapter one which is in order, thankfully. All right, so as this, the novel opens, it's set in 1981. Uh, most of the novel's set, I think, in 1988. I want to say I think there's a seven-year gap between the first 
six or seven. Now we got that out of place chapter there that complicates that counting. But the first six chapters or so are set to 1981, and then there's like a seven year gap, and we pick up with our characters several years after after the war. So that's the the temporal break that takes place. So the first few are really we, we, we are introduced to our characters, we're introduced to our setting, and then we then we have this war. Um, the reason the cause of the war is not clear, um, and Dick leaves it kind of ambiguous because we're supposed to think about the character of, of Dr. Boothgeld, Dr. Blood Money, about his role in all this and, and whether his psychosis is true. Like he comes out of the, these events believing he's the cause. He's just, he's the reason there's a nuclear war. Um, whether he is or not, or it's just a delusion of someone who's had his whole life, people's attention on him is, you know, it's, it's kind of left up in the air. It's, it's left ambiguous. But anyways, that's the main, that's, that's basically the story we, we have here. Uh, that's the way it's structured. So chapter one, uh, 1981, we meet Stuart McConchie. Stuart McConchie, he's a TV salesman at a place called Modern TV Sales. He's African-American. And he's just kind of sitting there, like sweeping the floor, getting ready for the day at work. And he's very optimistic. We have the typical kind of American dream, the typical kind of suburban environment that we've come to know from Philip K. Dick. And he sees this job as a way of, of moving up in society. Quote, and anyhow, this was 1981 and business was not bad. Another good year booming from the start where America got bigger and stronger. Everyone took more home. So he's got this this optimism about the future. Now that's all going to be moot by the end of the day. I think I think the first two chapters, seven chapters, all take place in one day, um, and, and it ends with the war. Um, he sees Doctor Stocks um, Stock still uh, nearby, who's like a local psychiatrist. Most of these characters we meet here survive the war. So Dick's establishing the characters who are going to survive the war. A, a few die out, but but by and large. The, the characters we meet early on are going to live into, into the second part of the novel when we get to see the world after a seven-year gap. Um, so he sees Dr. Stockstill. He also sees Dr. Stockstill's patients go by. And so the, the modern TV is right next to the, this psych, psychiatrist's office. And Stuart thinks about mental illness. And a lot of our characters throughout this novel are going to think about mental illness and they're going to have their own perspectives on, on what it is and, and to explain with different kind of interpretations of, of what these mental illnesses may mean, right? Now, I'm largely of the opinion that Dick thinks that mental illness is a product of a sick society and, and he's very much of the 1960s anti-psychiatry critique, the movement of that, that argued basically that we're products of our society and our culture and if we are just displaying irrational mentally ill behaviors because the society that we come from or the society around us is that is is mentally ill. Stuart though is a very judgmental character. He tends to to see the worst of a lot of characters, particularly early on in the story, and, and he does the same thing to Stock Stills patient. He tends to think that he's degraded, deteriorating. And this is a thing that comes up a lot here is deterioration also with another character we're gonna meet shortly, and that's um, Bonnie Keller. She thinks a lot about decline and decadence and deterioration. And, and one way that's examined is through, is through the mental illness. So basically, that's the opening scene. It's just a, a TV salesman you know, getting the store ready for, for the morning. And then we meet Stock Still's patient, 
who is named Mr. Tree. He's actually Bruno Bluthgeld. He's our Dr. Blood Money. But he goes under a false identity when he's out in public and when he's doing seeking out his mental health care. He goes by the name of Mr. Tree as kind of a, a, a cover of sorts. He's an incredibly self-centered character, and it comes out of partially his job as one of the like a world famous you know physicians he comes from europe it's you know i almost get the sense he's he's kind of that like that german nazi physician physicist that the americans poached you know either before or probably after the war he's severely anti-communist um he sort of has these kind of fascist tendencies though so that i always imagine him as, as one of these Nazi physicists that the that the Americans recruited after the war for the for kind of Cold War science, um, but that's his mental illness. Is he thinks everyone's looking at him and he thinks everyone's interrogating him. He also thinks he's got a disfigured face and he's got you know even though his face is basically normal and the psychiatrist looks at it, but that's why he covers himself in his own in public. It's very similar to some of the disorders of congrosion and the simulacrum. Congrosion, as you recall, believed. You know, that he had this body order that other people could, you know, this horrible body order that could like, kill other people or, or seriously injure them. Uh, it's completely in his mind, though, right? Here, he's kind of presented as a disfigurement, but also the fact that everyone's kind of looking at him and reading his mind. And the doctor kind of diagnoses him in his head right away as having what he calls paranoiac sensitivity or other times this, this kind of attitude is just, just described as paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, a mental illness Dick likes to go back to a lot. Now, the weird thing about this is he's famous, and his fame is something that would lead people to see him. You can imagine a celebrity walking down the street. Everyone would look at them, right? But if, you had a, if that same person had a paranoia that everyone was looking at them, they wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't be an irrational. It might still manifest as mental illness, but it wouldn't be an irrational fear. And that's that's kind of the tension we're given here with with Dr. Bluthgeld. So the, the psychiatrist begins to take his life history, even though he's a fairly famous guy. Now, the, the central, the important thing about Bruno Bluthgeld's past is that in 1972, he was involved. So that's nine years before the events of the novel. He was involved in some kind of atmospheric nuclear testing. It, it's not fully described what it is, but he was involved in some kind of testing, and he miscalculated. He made a mistake, and due to that fallout, nuclear fallout reigned over much of the country, and it led to a generation of blighted humans, people with all kinds of um, deformities. Now, we don't get the sense of post-humans, really, but, but there are post-human characters. There are psychically endowed characters. But they, one of them at least, uh, the, the TV repair guy, Hoppy Harrington, he was, he's like 20 years old, or maybe 17 or something, when the novel begins. So he wasn't a product of these Bluthgeld experiments. So post-humanism was already sort of part of it. But, we, you know, the, the, the blighted human, the generation of blighted humans is something that Bluthgeld is, is responsible for. He's responsible for a lot of suffering in the world and... He's kind of persevered with his career and tried to move on with it, but he's never able to outlive this. And people still fear him and talk about him. And there's even lines of people like, we're all just children of 72, or deformed people would be called the children of 72, right? The products of this event that is always going to be associated with the name of, of Bruno Bluthgeld. 
right? It's the great, it's the failure of the technocracies, right? When you have all this promise of technology and advancement and progress, and it fails in a catastrophic way, then who do you blame but the people who are promoting that that type of technological progress, right? That's Boothgell's position. Yet it's all being kind of reinverted as a as a paranoid schizophrenia. And, and this is something we know. Uh, this is what uh, Stocksdale thinks. He says, quote, it would be so easy to find pathology. You're so easy and so tempting. A man this hated. I share their opinion, he said to himself. The they that Bluthgeld, or rather Tree, talks about. After all, I'm part of society too, part of the civilization menaced by the grandiose, extravagant miscalculations of this man. It could have been, could someday be my children blighted because this man had the arrogance to assume that he could not err. End quote. And this kind of bridges into this kind of conflict over question of like, who's our enemy, right? Bluthgeld is working with the Americans against the Russians or against the communists. I think the conflict in the novel is, is more with Cuba or something, but there's this kind of Cold War paranoia that's saying you have to support people like Bluthgeld because they're going to give us the weapons we need to win the war. But if they're the ones dropping bombs on us and causing radiation spills, who's the real enemy here? Who's the real one that's the threat? Quote, our enemy, Stocksdale thought. Who is our enemy? Isn't it you, Mr. Tree? Isn't it you sitting here rattling off your paranoid delusions? How did you ever get to that high post you now hold? Who is responsible for giving you power over the lives of others and letting you keep that power even after the fiasco of 1972? You and they are surely our enemies. So after this fascinating conversation between Boothgeld and, and his psychiatrist, uh, where we learn a lot about Bluthgeld and we learn a lot about uh, this overall, I think, central theme of the novel, which is the, 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 the legitimate fear of the technocracy. We're, we're back to that. We go back to the modern TV um, shop and we meet Jim Ferguson, who is the owner. He's not a very major character here. Uh, he dies during the war, but I, I think he's he's in a, like a worldview that's not going to survive the war. And he's like the, the over-the-top liberal, the, the person who is ready to hire anyone of any kind of minority group to kind of prove that he's, you know, on, on, the, on the side of good. Right, that, that kind of wishy-washy liberal type is, is what Jim, Jim Ferguson is. And he's got a very interesting relationship with Stuart McConchie, um, especially after he hires someone else. So Stuart McConchie is under the impression, as the novel begins, that he got this job at the TV shop because he's qualified, he's good, right? And then when he learns that he's hiring this other character who is disabled, then Stuart begins to wonder if he got the job because of of his of his skin color um, but it basically as the chapter ends we're introduced to jim ferguson and he's telling stewart that he's hired hoppy harrigan who is is well known locally um, because he's a fulchemalist i think that's how it's pronounced these are people uh, you know who are born with certain limbs atrophied right now sometimes it's like an ear but with this character hoppy it's his arms and legs are kind of diminished and he has to ride around in this cart this kind of automated wheelchair thing that he rides around in now his is kind of old and broken down but he makes do in part because he's he's got some types of, of actual psychic powers and, and telekinetic powers 
but and he's got other powers too. Apparently, he's he's really kind of a post-human figure. But he's being hired to be a repairman, and you know that's kind of odd because he's he's barely has any arms really. So how could he do repairs? And that's that's a kind of a question that we're given early on in in the story. But th that's how chapter one ends. In chapter two, we're then formally introduced to to Hoppy Her Heriton, who who is in fact seventeen years old. And he immediately faces discrimination from Stuart. And Stuart, we've just met him, you know, in the, the beginning of the first chapter, and he's already judged a couple people who are different. He's, he's judged Hoppy Harriton hostily. And first, he's suspicious of how he can be a repairman. He's suspicious of why he was hired. He thinks he was basically like an affirmative action hire. And this forces him to think, well, was I an affirmative action hire too by this liberal um, shop owner? He doesn't really understand how Hoppy can do any repairs, so he's very judgmental about Hoppy coming into his turf, essentially, and, and largely because it begins to lead him to question his own value. Dick writes, and what does that make me? Stuart asked himself as he stand upstairs as he sat upstairs in the store's office, going over his sales books. I mean, he thought, with the folky working here, that practically makes me a radiation freak too, as if being colored with some sort of early form of radiation burn. He felt gloomily thinking about it. And then he actually goes into this kind of weird theory of race that, that basically all, everyone was originally white and then like radiation from the sun mutated people to be darker skin color. I, I believe that's probably a weird theory of race origin out there somewhere. But it's, there's no truth to it, obviously. But it's, it's kind of a, his train of thought kind of goes that way. I guess that makes all these people, that's when they say we're all children of 72, that's sort of what that means, you know, the obsession over radiation and genetic abnormalities coming out of radiation is on everyone's mind after, after 1972. Um, we, we are introduced a little bit more to Hoppy's machine. We actually learned that Hoppy is quite politically active. He, he pushes for his, you know, rights. He, he's guaranteed certain quality equipment from his government and when he doesn't get it he writes letters so he's very self-conscious about his own identity and about who he is and his place in the world and he's willing to, to we learn right away that he's willing to fight for his status and his, his self-respect um, we we see him do a little repair and he does a repair of a tv very very quickly and we learn that he's hired not for affirmative action reasons because he really is an adequate satisfactory repairman in fact, he's kind of brilliant because he's able to use his telekinetic powers and his psychic powers to repair things. So he's a, he basically repairs things with his mind, and he doesn't actually need his physical body to perform these things. Um, but the question that comes up, and other workers will ask Hoppy this over the course of the novel, is like, why do you take this job? Why even be a repairman? You you could be you know focus on your mind, right? So they see a diminutive, deformed you know, disabled person and say, well, you know, you're still useful, but you should use your mind, right? You, you can't do what we do. You can't do like our physical repair work. And he proves he can. And that, you know, cuts under them pretty deeply, right? That they, they feel if a folky can do what we can do, what good or what use are we, right? But they're, they're trying to push him to say, well, go to college, right? Get a job using your mind. But in a sense, he is using his mind. To do repair work and you know i sometimes wonder 
why Dick was so fascinated by repair work. He writes a whole novel about this called Galactic Pot Healer at the end of the 60s, one of his best, maybe his best novel. And it's about the work of repair. It's about a repairman. And that character comes up again, again and again in his work, even way back early on with The Variable Man. That was about a tinkerer and a repairman from an earlier era coming into the future and providing a profound change to to the world that he was brought into because of his unique way of looking at problems, you know, because there's something about the repair work that it's like a mentally engaging. Manufacturing isn't, right? Manufacturing is you put in front of a machine, it's all programmed into the, it's all scientifically managed into the work process, what you do, right? You may make shoes at the factory, but you're not really making them in the sense that you think of a shoe in your head and you go to work at it. But a repair person, right, who is given a problem, then they have to use their creativity, their skill, their cleverness, their knowledge to solve a problem. That is something kind of cool for Philip Dick because it's it's the mental aspect of, of work. And I would never call Philip K. Dick a Marxist, but in the sense of how he looks at work, I think Dick and Marx have a lot in common. Maybe that's, that's what I would say about it. They would understand each other if they sat down and talked about the value of work. And they both have the same criticism of like automation and and capitalism in that it degrades work. I think where they might differ is Marx certainly thought automation could liberate people from odious labor. Dick doesn't trust automation very much, but they both see the value of work in its creative, in its mental component. And the connection of the physical with the mental is one of life's great pleasures. And we see this in our own life, right? A lot of people like gardens. They like building gardens. They like reforming their backyard. They like working in workshops. They like using their hands to make furniture. This is stuff, if you were to put it into a factory setting, would be odious and horrible and boring. But when you know people have the freedom to engage, fully engage their mind and their creativity into the work, it becomes one of the most pleasurable of, of human experiences. So I think Dick's, and here with Hoppy, he's literally using his mind to fix things. And it's kind of the, the ultimate. He doesn't even need his physical body to do that. It's purely a form of problem solving. It's, it's like a puzzle for Hoppy Harrigan. And that's that's kind of a fascinating part of Hoppy's character. He does become a malevolent figure by the end of the novel, but at this point there's a, you know, a lot to kind of empathize with in, in his character. Okay, with Hoppy Harrigan more or less introduced, we're, we're then introduced to, to Bonnie Keller, another one of our major characters, and maybe one of the, the central moral character of, of the novel. She's, she's very complex. Um, Dick doesn't write too many women characters very well. This, I think, is an exception to that. Um, it's actually a neglected one. Usually people, when they talk about Dick's portrayal of women, they, they rarely mention Bonnie Keller. And Keller's a very complex figure. She's very thoughtful. She's really, you know, she's, she's the promiscuous, cheating wife. And, and that's an archetype that Dick uses a lot, but she's so thoughtful and reflective and, and moral, right? She's, she's got this really, really strong moral center to her, and that, that runs throughout the novel. And she's, so she's thinking about various things. There's a lot going on in her, her monologue. Some of it has to do with the, the mission to Mars that's going on, and I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. But she's mostly thinking about, when the, we open up, she's thinking about Bruno Luthgeld, who she knows, and she's sort of associated with. I think she's, she's working at like the same labs that he is, so she knows um, Bruno Luthgeld quite, 
quite well. And she knows he's, reached, he's having any mental problems and seeing a psychiatrist. Now, she herself has her own psychological problems, if you want to call it that. Um, she's married to George, her, who's a vice principal at a school, and she's just not happy with her life and her marriage. Quote, well, not very happy, just moderately, tolerably happy. She still took analysis herself once a week, now instead of three times. In many respects, she understood herself, her unconscious drives, her par paratactic systematic distortions of the reality situation. Analysis, six years of it had done a great deal for her, but she was not cured. There was no such thing as being cured. The illness was life itself and a constant growth, or rather a viable growing adaptation, had to continue or psychic stagnation would re result. That's, so she's kind of gone through this process of, of psychotherapy. And she's constantly trying to work her mind because she fears she has paranoia about stagnation and kind of decadence. And she, this goes so far that she actually enjoys reading books like The Decline of the West. You know, was it Spengler? So he like read German philosophy and historical texts. Uh, but on this theme of, of decline, right? And, you know, she, she, you know she's, she's the kind of character who would read this book and want to talk about it, but not be able to find anyone who wants to listen to her, wants to hear what she has to say about it. So she actually touches into, gets, you know, is able to talk about German culture a little bit with Dr. Blood Money, and that's partially why she, she has a connection to him. And unlike most people who see him just as a villain, she tries to understand him, and she has a, a fair degree of, of empathy for him. Um, the other main thing going on in this chapter, though, is is the news reports she's watching about the the Dutchman Four rocket launching mission. This is going to be the first mission to Mars. Um, now, we're, we're told that the Russians had tried earlier a, a manned settlement on the moon and that failed. So the United States is trying to one-up the Russians by, by landing people on Mars permanently. So the only two people are going, it's, it's Walt Dangerfield and his wife. These are going to be the first people on, on Mars. It's not really clear why they were chosen, but we, we get flashbacks and mentions of some of like the media the media events that Dangerfield went on before going on on this mission, and you know he's a very folksy guy, very charismatic guy, very much kind of a American West kind of frontiers frontier kind of man, and you know he he fits the archetype of the frontiersman, the settler almost. Now she works close to the technical field and scientific field, so she's kind of up in what's going on, and she's actually quite critical of NASA for trying to just send two people. She thinks they should send like a bunch of different rockets, so she fears that NASA's trying to do this this on the cheap, and that you know if something goes wrong with this rocket, you know it's going to set back the program for for a number of years. So she's got some concerns about that. Now after we meet, oh, one other thing about Bonnie Killer, she's she's clearly promiscuous, and she has affairs with you know, constantly throughout her marriage. So she's cheating on her husband often. In fact, right when the bombs are dropping, she's, she's in the truck with some random guy. That's, that's part of her character, is her promiscuity. And part of her character arc is then to, to, to find love, a stable, meaningful love in a post-apocalyptic environment. And it almost takes the war for her to break out of this, this life that she's trapped, this trapped life she, she's living in you know, in, in her marriage. And, and I guess she has kids. Yeah, she must, because um, when we meet the, the other kids, they're, 
they're eight, nine, or ten, so they're they're little at this point. I don't remember if they're mentioned in this chapter, but I'm, I'm thinking the the Bonner, the Keller kids must be just little toddlers at the, when the war when the war starts. Now, then we go back to modern TV, and we were back with Stuart, and Stuart is also watching the Dangerfield rocket being prepared to, to shoot off, and he starts to have dreams of emigration himself, and he's thinking maybe when the colony on Mars gets started up, maybe there'll be a future for, for him there as well. And, um, you know, as I said many times in this podcast, the frontier is a major theme of, of Dick's, and by the mid-60s, he's kind of down on the frontier there's still, though, moments in which you have that kind of idea that maybe the frontier can still be a place of, of some kind of rebirth. And certain characters will think it, you know, sometimes we'll even have it in whole novels. But, you know, it's here we have little tastes of it in the Dangerfield mission. Now, where the real frontier is, though, is on Earth, a remade Earth, an Earth remade by the war, where people, communities, families are forced to to remake their world uh, under different laws, under in a different context. And out of that comes something much stronger and more meaningful and more human. So anyways, that's, that's chapter two. Now chapter three is all about Stuart and, and Hoppy. Um, Stuart takes a break from watching the Dangerfield um, mission and goes to a place like Fred's Fine Food, it's called, and he's going to have his lunch. And he's Unfortunately, he, he sees Hoppy's there, and he's not happy to see Hoppy there. And Hoppy's kind of causing a scene when he comes in, and that's he wants to drink a beer. For, you know, and first of all, he's kind of young, but I guess it's in those days it wasn't illegal for, for people his age to, well, I guess in the 60s. I'm not sure. I don't, don't remember what the drinking age was. But he wants to have a beer, and he says, it's my lunch break. I can have a beer if I want. But the other people from the modern TV say, no, 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 you can't because the boss man doesn't want you drinking during your lunch hour. And he says, ah, oh, it's my lunch hour. Finally, he wears down everyone and he, he finally gets a beer, right? He wins out. It's, it's kind of actually a fairly ugly scene where you have these normies basically trying to tell a disabled person, you know, the proper way to live his life. Um, but Hoppy eventually does win, and you know, through, through force of will, when he gets his, his beer, and then he goes in and he essentially starts to have a freak show. So apparently, when he drinks beer, he, this unlocks some kind of psychic event, and he starts to go into a fit where his psychic powers are unlocked, and he's able to kind of predict the future and have visions and dreams and things. So then, people, as he starts to do this, people start to throw him questions. You know what's life like in the afterlife or what the future is going to be like and they start to ask him and then Hoppy starts to actually recite his dreams and to tell people what's going to happen to him so he starts to have these visions he basically becomes an oracle and when he drinks a beer his visions are, are all very very bleak one person asks them you know is you know when you die is there the light you know what happens to you when you die and Hoppy says gray darkness like ashes then a great flatness nothing but fires burning Life, light is from the burning fires. They burn forever. Nothing is alive. And they ask, where are you? And Hoppy says, I'm floating, floating near the ground. No, now I'm very high. I'm weightless. I don't have a body anymore. I'm so high up, as high as I want to be. I can hang here if I want to. I don't have to go back down. I like it up here, and I can go around the earth forever. There is down below me. There it is down below me, and I can just go around and around. 
Now, this is what Dangerfield is going to end up doing, is his mission fails and he's just going to end up orbiting the Earth after this war, and no one can get him down. And Hoppy is going to be, you're going to see by the end of the novel, but Hoppy is going to be in this situation. So he's not seeing the afterlife necessarily. What he's seeing is the future. And he just has these dreams of all these dead bodies, of all this fire, and all the things that are going to come out of a nuclear war. So he essentially predicts or has visions of, of the nuclear war that's coming later that day and after he has this, this beer. So he has these, after these strange visions, Stuart, you know, after, after Hoppy recovers, Stuart, you know, helps him back to the TV repair shop. Hoppy and Stuart talk as they return, and, and at this point, Hoppy says, well, I had a vision of you too, essentially. I had a vision of you eating a dead raw rat, and this kind of grosses Stuart out. But again, this is another vision of something that is going to happen in the course of the novel. Stuart, Stuart in a bunker after the war or in the basement of modern TV, I guess, forced to, to eat dead rats to survive. So back at the TV repair shop, they talk more about Hoppy's work and, and the boss, Jim Ferguson, you know, is really impressed by Stuart or Hoppy's capacity to repair things. He doesn't quite know how he's able to do it, but it's pretty impressive and it works. Um, Stuart does talk to Ferguson, though, about his fit and Ferguson confronts Hoppy about that. And Hoppy says, well, I didn't see you in your visions, which tells us that Ferguson is not going to probably survive the war. He just says straight up, I didn't see you, Mr. Ferguson, because your soul perished and won't be reborn. Now, another thing that happens in this chapter is, is, is Hoppy talks a little bit about the feeling of being different and disabled and, you know, and having these physical, visible physical disabilities in a world that seems to put a lot of emphasis on how people look. And, and this is actually a moment of, of bonding between Stuart and, and Hoppy that's kind of interesting. And Hoppy goes and thinks about his earliest memory as a child. And the earliest memory of the child was basically carried to church in a blanket and laid in, laid on the pews rather than, you know, so he'd be hidden, essentially. He'd be, he was brought to church, but the family didn't want the other people at the church to see Hoppy as he really was. Now, Hoppy obviously wasn't a product of 72, not a product of Bluthgeld's experiments. He, his, his disability was caused by, caused by like, just chemical pollutants. Um, but after telling this story, he, he says, like, he tells to Stuart, this is a terrible world, quote, once your Negroes had to suffer, if you had lived in the South, you'd be suffering now. You'd forget all about that because they'd let you forget. But me, they don't let me forget. Anyways, I don't want to forget about myself, I mean. In the next world, you'll, it will all be different. You'll find out because you'll be there too, end quote. And Hoppy is looking forward to the end of the world because it will, those prejudices will break free. He'll be able to rise up in a world where his powers, his knowledge, his intelligence will matter. And the world will be forced to look beyond his physical disabilities. And I think that's a, it's interesting, you know. And maybe part of our fascination with the post-apocalyptic in, in so, so much of it in, in culture is that people sometimes do think that maybe the world would be better if the world ended, maybe the world would would be happier if you know the bombs fell and I'd one of the survivors and I could be free. I wouldn't have to go to work, right? Kind of like that guy in the Twilight Zone episode who could read books, you know, after the war. 
You know, there's something kind of liberating about that. And that's just, uh, that's a condemnation of the world we live in, that so many people actually pine for some catastrophic disaster that will lead to the deaths of, of millions. You know, as, as maybe that's the only way, if that's the only way to get free, we're really in big trouble. And Hoppy is, is of that point of view, that the only way he can get free is by, by some shattering of, of the world system. And then um, that's basically all for chapter three. We get we get a little bit more on his his fixing that he's actually not repairing things in this normal technical way. He's actually really like healing them, almost like an organic entity. And that's again back to his um, his his use of his mind to to repair things. Okay, so this brings us to chapter four, which is the clearly out of place chapter. Again, if anyone listening has a good reason for why this chapter is here and not like three chapters later, um, please, please let me know. Um, I'm just going to do it in the order it's written, um, but, you know, this should really come later. We are obviously after the emergency, after the war, um, seven years later. In fact, we're told... Specifically, it's been seven years since the war. That hasn't even happened yet in Chapter 3. Um, so I'll be kind of quick here, and, and I'll kind of go back to these events where they should be when, when I get there later in my, in my talk. But I just want to mention what's in this chapter very briefly. We meet this character, Mr. Osteris, and he's, he's like an old college professor who's now West Marin's, Maris's teacher of this kind of survival, this community that survived the war. He's like the main teacher. And he, right now he's just like picking mushroom, mushrooms. That's a hobby. And he, he knows how to pick the edible ones and he kind of survives off, off picking mushrooms. It's, it's kind of a secret craft he keeps for himself so he can have all the mushrooms for himself. Now he sees Hoppy kind of crossing the street on, in his little cart thing. And a car almost hits him. And Hoppy just very kind of grits it and, and gets through it and, you know, faces, faces the fear of this oncoming truck kind of courageously, right? And then he gets to the end and he just stops there. And Austeris, Mr. Austeris sees him, but I don't think Hoppy knows he's there. And then after a moment, Hoppy starts like breaking down and crying. And what we realize is that Hoppy was truly terrified, thought he was going to die uh, in this car, but yet he refused to back down or move out of the way. He basically played chicken with this truck out of like will and, and boldness. And it's kind of about, again, it's about him asserting his place in the world. It's, it's a big part of his character is his necessity to assert where he is. It doesn't mean he's not afraid of the consequences of that. And, that's shown here, but he never wants to lose face in front of other people, so he only would cry and, and show this fear in private. So then he goes to, after this, he goes to a dinner party, essentially at the Kellers. And so it's, the Kellers are there. It's his teacher, Mr. Austeris. Um, the psychiatrist is there. And Stockstill. They talk about uh, Bluthgeld as well. So Bluthgeld's sort of there in spirit. Um, now he's still alive, and I think he's still going by Mystery Tree, but everyone thinks he sort of died in the war and he's been kind of hiding out, and, and we'll learn that later on. And then there's also um, George. George is still around, um, Bonnie's husband. And then Eddie. Eddie is the daughter of, of the Kellers. 
And she has what everyone presumes to be an imaginary friend named Bill. And she'll say, like, you know, Bill thinks this. And she talks to Bill. Bill's actually a, like a like a conjoined fetus that's in her body and and you know like some people have conjoined fetus and one dies right and then they have to remove it or whatever some people have conjoined they're conjoined twins and they both live right and they can separate them or, or not depending on if they're able now this is when your conjoined twin is actually eaten up by your body or why when you're still in the in the uterus and then there's like a like a little baby brother or sister inside your Guts somewhere, and that's what she has. But she's able to like talk to it. This this kid is still alive, and she's able to communicate with it. Oh wait, I, I was wrong about the age earlier. It says she's seven. So yeah, Bonnie Keller had her after the war, um, or right at the time of the war. I guess that makes one of her affairs the the actual father. Yeah, that's right. Now I'm remembering. Um, one of the men Bonnie slept with, I think right when the war started, was is the father. So anyways, they're just having this dinner party. They talk about different things. They, they talk about Bluthgeld and his impact and, and how the war has kind of made us all children of 72. And, and so that's why Bluthgeld is in everyone's mind. Now, the other thing they're doing is they're all preparing for listening to Walt Dangerfield's broadcasts. And so, again, this is events that happen later in the novel. That's, what, that's why it's so unfortunate this chapter's out of place. Is Walt Dangerfield, his mission failed and he was kept in orbit around the Earth. His wife kills him herself out of despair. There's no way to get back to Earth because of the war. So Walt Dangerfield makes the best of the situation and he simply becomes a DJ for the entire world. And he does readings, he puts on music and just kind of entertains world. It becomes something that unites the world. And it's an ultimate act of self-sacrifice. It's not what he signed up for, it's not what he wanted, but he has nothing better to do and he feels this need to be this voice for for humanity, and that's that's the role Walt Dangerfield will play throughout the novel, and everyone is sitting down ready, listen, ready to listen to his his work. And and that's all I'll say about chapter four. Again, it's very awkward that this this chapter is out of place, but that's that's just where we're at. I'll I'll come back to some of these events when when I want to talk about where this should be in the actual story. So, anyways, uh, moving on. So, uh, chapter five of, of Dr. Blood Money. So, this chapter takes us back to before the war, or pretty much to the time the war breaks out. It's the same day that, that the novel began on, you know, with that chapter four oddly placed out of the way, we kind of get back into a normal chronology. And this chapter is set really where we look at different characters while the bombs start to drop. And there's no real explanation about why the bombs dropped, who caused it, the geopolitical context of this really doesn't matter, right? <clears throat> what matters mostly is the, the response of these different people to, to the war, and particularly the response of, of Dr. Bluthgeld, Bruno Bluthgeld, as he begins to come to the realization, in his mind at least, that he's the cause of, of this war. And that's where we really begin, is with Dr. 
Bruno Bothgeld walking through Berkeley. And yes, basically, he's, he's mulling over his disease. He has more worries on it. He's also got anxieties about his physical characteristics and deterioration, as well as his mental deterioration. And he's very, very aloof. And then he starts to really notice that this, the climate, the, the, the environment around him is changing. And he has a, the realization that war has begun. Bombs are dropping. There's like, I think, suit is falling from the sky from, from the bombs and the explosions. And his aloofness is disrupted and he realizes that that war has begun. Then we switch back to modern TV with Stuart McConchie and his, his co-workers. And their realization that something is up and that war is coming happens at the moment that they lose the picture of Dangerfield because they were watching the, the launch of the rocket. And at that moment, the, the channel blacks out, out and you know they realize something is up. We then flip to what happens with Dangerfield. And essentially, as the war breaks out, he is being shot into orbit, right? Just as the attack hits. So this is going to prevent him from completing his full-blown mission to to Mars, but it's going to leave him in orbit. So he's, he get, does get to an orbit just as the attack hits. In fact, he's ready for the like the booster rockets to shoot him out of the orbit towards Mars when, you know, the, the war begins and he loses that, you know, that, that contact with, with the ground. Um, stock, stock still is... When the war hits, when the when the bomb starts to drop, is simply searching for shelter, as are we presume many many different people, and he has a more philosophical response to this, and he kind of goes back to a theme he thought about earlier when he was talking to Bluthgeld, and that's just the ambiguity of the enemy, right? Who is actually doing this? Why are these bombs dropping? Who's causing it? And that's really something that's never fully answered, right? Is it the U.S. government? Was it a mistake? Was it a interstate conflict was was a Blutzgeld guy, I mean, because he's going to come to the belief that he's the cause, he's the center of this catastrophe. But he's continuing to mull over who is the enemy. Uh, to quote, this is on page 73 of my version, which is the vintage version, quote, and then in the middle of his cursing, he had a weird, vivid notion. The war had begun and they were had been bombed or probably would die. But it was Washington that was dropping the bombs on them, not the Russians or the Chinese. Something had gone wrong with the automatic defense system out in space, and it was acting out of its cycle this way. And no one could halt it either. It was war or death, yes, but it was an error. It lacked intent. He did not feel any hostility from the forces abroad. They were not vengeful or motivated. They were empty, hollow, completely cold. It was as if his car had run over him. It was real but meaningless. It was not policy. It was breakdown and failure and chance, end quote. And, and of course, that's how many people felt during the Cold War during, you know, where, where people felt they were really just victims of kind of institution, right? Or these, these monolithic institutions made decisions. War was distant. War was from afar. It was just pushing buttons. It didn't have that kind of brutality of, of even like that World War II would have had where, you know, combatants were face-to-face -face or even hand-to-hand -hand combat from time to time. It's all so abstract. And warfare has become more and more that way, at least in the industrialized world. You know, where people from destroyers who shoot rockets and missiles and, and never actually see the enemy face-to-face, -face, right? Or now with drones just launching people, it becomes a bit like a video game. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a... It's trying to be interesting commentary on, on technocratic, bureaucratic warfare and, and what it actually means. And the, the way it kind of... Kind of we, we take the rage and the anger out of war. It becomes less about force and violence and asserting oneself kind of 
you know, as a as a force of will, but it just becomes a a matter of policy or programming or institutional logic. And you know, what does that mean for for warfare? Is I think a question Dick is asking here. You know, just the general indifference of war. Um, now, back at uh, Modern TV, Ferguson and the others are looking for Ferguson, Stewart, Hoppy, and others are looking for safety. And Hoppy's actually ecstatic over the war. He's the one person who's eager for this to happen. And one part of Hoppy's whole plot here is he wants all, everything from the old world to be abolished, right? He, he thinks the old world is what kept him behind, the, you know, the civilized world that before the war is what kept him from moving up and achieving his potential. And so throughout the novel, he's going to want to destroy any effort to rebuild that old way. And that's going to be his major character arc and his, his major ambition when he starts to see kind of the institutions of civilization come up again and be rebuilt he wants to step away in the way of that that progress right he sees his destiny would be something that would come in a new world in which his abilities would be appreciated ferguson dies uh, just in kind of in just as hoppy predicted he would and then at the end of chapter five, we get uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Keller. Now, Bonnie Keller, after the bombs drop, has a, has a fling with a man we're going to meet in the next chapter called Andrew Gill. You kind of have to piece the two chapters together, and there's like a, a shoe that, that she leaves behind that is the evidence that, that this took pay, place. But after this affair with Andrew Gill, she goes back to her house to survey the wreckage. Um, now her her husband survives, right? Now it's during her her affair with Andrew Gill that she conceives Eddie and and Bill, her her children. Now Bill is going to be a that kind of fetus child inside of Eddie, but they're going to be they're conceived by Andrew Gill. It seems. I mean, that's highly likely. It's what's implied in the rest of the novel. So, but she does go home, and and George is going to live, but her house is destroyed, and. And she just, after realizing that there's really nothing to go back to, she decides to, to, to not re return. And what she's experienced is kind of the end of that, that kind of suburban life she built up for herself. Um, quote, on oh, my head, she thought. She rubbed her forehead and bits of material fell from her hair. Now she cannot understand that the floor was flat again. The wall was upright as it always been. Back to normal. But the objects were all broken. That remained. The garbage house, she thought. It'll take weeks, months. We'll never build it back. It's the end of our life, our happiness. Standing, she walked around. She kicked the pieces of the chair aside. She kicked through the trash towards the door. The air swirled with particles, and she inhaled them. She choked on them, hating them. Glass everywhere. All her lovely plate glass windows gone. Empty square holes with a few shards, which still broke loose and dropped even as she watched. And th this kind of realization that her... Her, the kind of world she built up is unrepairable. She starts to, to panic, and, and she eventually walks away from this. Now, both Hoppy and Bonnie eventually are able to embrace the post-world world, but they do it in, in very different ways. Hoppy does it more out of, he sees it as an opportunity for him to uplift himself. And Bonnie is going to be searching for answers for what this transition means uh, for the rest of the novel. So chapter six, chapter six opens with one of my favorite passages in, in any Philip Dick novel. This isn't primarily a novel about relationships the way Clans of the Elfane Moon or Now Wait for Last Year are. It's, it's, it's dealing with other issues, but with the character of Bonnie, Bonnie, Bonnie Keller, we're really forced to question 
the, you know, the nature of marriages, the nature of relationships, and, and how we find meaning in our relationships, right? She's an adulteress throughout the novel, and a pretty open one. Everyone seems to know this about her. She has affairs with many, many of the characters. Stockstill, Andrew Gill, the person we're going to meet now. Uh, a new teacher comes in at one point, and she has an affair with him. So she's, she's very promiscuous. It doesn't seem to really undermine her marriage in, in any way. It's something that George seems to accept even after the war breaks out. Um, but we see another side of that with the character of Andrew Gill. And, and essentially what happens is after the bombs start dropping, he, you know, he, he sleeps with Bonnie Keller or has sex with Connie Keller in the back of his truck. And he's, he's like a liquor cigarette salesperson. And he's got all that the, the stuff in his in his truck. He he sleeps with her, and then she's when the chapter opens, Bonnie's already gone, and he's thinking about the the fling with her, and he he's thinking how beautiful she is, and he's kind of getting old. He's like in his fifties, so he feels he's he's kind of over the hill, and he's never going to have a chance with such a beautiful woman again. Um, and then he thinks, well, I have to get back to my family because they're probably you know in trouble and then he just kind of says well they're probably dead or at the very least they'll think I'm dead and I don't have to go back right so this moment war the war becomes a liberating moment for him but liberation from what well in his case it's from a, a family that wasn't making him happy right and he found much more joy in the brief moment with 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 Keller with Bonnie Keller and so when he looks around the truck he finds that her shoes machine and in the previous chapter Bonnie mentions that she left her shoe behind. This becomes then justification for him to stay here and not go back to his his home town. And then he ends up he's going to end up staying in this region and, and start a business there making cigarettes out of like various dried weeds and, and stuff. So it's and then he thinks, well, I have all this liquor and cigarettes and it's going to make me rich. I'll be, I'll be an important man, you know, because I'll have the only supply of this stuff. So that's going to be his arc. We don't see him again for probably another five or six chapters, but Andrew Gild is always going to be here, part of this community, part of the rebuilding effort. And his, his role is really going to be that as, a, as the, the cigarette liquor salesperson. Maybe actually become pretty regionally famous for his, his formula because he, he makes it with tobacco. Now, I don't know if any tobacco is grown traditionally in, in California. You know, of course, in Virginia, North Carolina, that place, it, they, they produce a lot. I don't know if it, if it can be made in, in California or not, or grown, I mean. But uh, in this novel, the, the kind of tobacco is hard to come by. So he ends up making a tobacco equivalent with, with various other things, and he rolls the cigarettes by hand. But anyways, the, the whole attitude of Andrew Gill as he realizes that his family might be dead and the, the, the sense of freedom he gets from that is something that I really think, it goes back to overall Dick's critique of the family and the, the way the family becomes kind of a prison and the, just the weakness of the bourgeois family that where people are together for no real clear reason. And I think thinks that we need to liberate ourselves from those types of relationships and, and try to find things based on more relationships based on more meaningful, meaningful things. And then after meeting Andrew Gill, we return to Dr. Bluthgeld. And here we have, I think, what's in one of the central discussions of, of the book. And it's basically Bluthgeld walking around 
coming to the realization that he caused this war. Now, whether that's really the case or not, is, it's not really clear. I, I tend to think that's not what's going on, that it's just his own kind of delusions and paranoia and his megalomania about himself. And I think this is, this is in many ways Dick's critique of the technocratic class in general, in that they think they can solve all problems, but they also think that they're the cause of everything good or bad that happens. It's, it's this very narcissistic um, class of people who, you know, good or bad, it's, it's, it's all about them, right? And that, that's why he gets this paranoia. He thinks everyone's looking at him and everyone cares what happens to him. So this technocratic obsession is what this section of the novel is about, and it's all in chapter six. Um, he destroys the world in his mind, and then he also comes to the conclusion that he can then fix the world merely with a projection of, of his own will. So he starts to imagine he can fix the world around him, like the broken buildings. Quote, he walked, and as he did so, he contented, concentrated on the damage around him. He viewed it with the idea of healing it, of restoring the city if at all possible, to its pure state. When he came to a building that had collapsed, he paused and said, let this building be restored. When he saw injured people, he said, let these people be adjusted innocent and so forgiven. Each time he made a motion with his hand, which he had devised, it indicated his determination to see that such things as this did not reoccur. Perhaps they had learned a permanent lesson, he thought. They may leave me alone now. But it occurred to him, perhaps they would go in the opposite direction. They would after they had dragged themselves from the ruins of their house, developing even greater determination to destroy him, end quote. So uh, the, the technocrat also has this feeling that he'll never be fully appreciated and accepted and loved by the, the people. And certainly Bluthgeld has that same um, delusion. And then there's a scene where he, he just essentially becomes a refugee. He has all these delusions of grandeur, but he becomes just another po post-war refugee. He goes into a, a hospital, gets checked out for radiation and, and arms and stuff like that and then he realizes like why well, didn't fix you know the sick people right and it's the failure of, of the tech technocratic class itself right it, it can solve some problems very well but it necessarily that doesn't necessarily have the ability to actually improve people's quality of life or improve medical care right for everything that tech the technocracy every problem they can seem to solve they don't seem to solve ones that are also significant and need addressing right like they can I think Elon Musk, you know, he has this plan to like, create all these like tubes for mass transit in cities, you know, cost billions of dollars to Im Im implement, you know, instead of just actually accepting higher taxes so cities can invest in better mass transit, which we have the technology for anyways, right? Um, in this case, Bluthgeld completely was oblivious to the fact that people were suffering actual, like, you know, dying, and he didn't use his quote-unquote magic powers to, you know, his ability, his mental, his ability to mentally repair things to actually, um, you know, actually help the sick. Quote, I thought I had fixed that, he thought. Or did I forget about disease? Evidently I did. He began to walk in that direction, bewildered by his failure to have taken everything into account. I must have left out a variety of vital things, he realized as he joined the line of people waiting to have their heads shaved. Then we get a rather, rather long scene at the end of chapter six of Stuart in a basement. This is sometime after the war and he's eating a rat. This is, uh, of course, a callback to the scene of Hoppy predicting that Stuart would eat a rat at some point. Uh, he's there with a dying man named Ken, who we never see again because he's dying, but he's kind of Stuart's companion. And they just sit around and talk and play chess. 
and Stewart's not very good at chess, and he kind of plays it in a, in a in an indifferent way, which is kind of tragic in a way because this man he's with is dying, and he can't even give him a good chess game before he dies. Now Stewart's been wasting his time going to the surface and picking dead people's pockets for money, and Ken tells him what a waste of time that it is. Instead, he should be going to like the relief stations. And Ken actually at one point says, why don't you go to the relief stations? You can get some food there and, you know, help, you know, kind of move on with your life, such as it is after the war. But Stuart has great fears about the future. Um, and he generally is worrying about and has a lot of anxiety about his own social difficulties and his failures. And he's got a lot of ambivalence about what the future um, lies for him. And we, when we catch up with Stuart seven years later, we're going to find that he actually is going to be doing the same kind of stuff he did before the war. He's just a, a salesperson of, of appliances. Instead of TVs, it's going to be mouse traps or rat traps. So there is kind of a stagnation in, in Stuart, which is something that Bonnie Keller is always anxious about too, is stagnation. So both these characters are, are obsessed with the day of stagnation, but Stuart's much more worried about his own incapacity to, to be independent. Like at one point he, he is worried because now he won't have to like renew his license at the motor vehicle department. It's something that he had to do. It was like his life was being guided by these institutions and, and by people like Ferguson, his employer. And he's losing that. He's losing that, that you know, the, the, the overall path in his life that, that, he, that he thinks he, he needs. He eventually goes uh, on Ken, the dying man's you know, suggestion he goes up to the surface to get cigars or cigarettes for for him and then he brings those back and then they have a little bit of a discussion about sex after the war and it's first is like you know no one was really interested in having sex because it's just beer survival after the war but then Stuart you know kind of has an angry reply and basically calls for the end of humanity saying you know sex should be banned in the post-war world because of mutations and and things like that so that's his response is not really creative. And I, I think that's an important part of Stuart's character compared to some others is he really is incapable of seeing a brighter future for the world. He only sees the bleakness and the, and the problems. And then he just proceeds to lose chess to this dying man. Um, and I think overall Stuart is a, an interesting narrative of paralysis and failure and how a character overwhelmed with this feeling of paralysis and this feeling this need to be guided through life how can someone like that deal with the aftermath of a war which does shatter all the institutions around us so that's that's chapter chapter six chapter seven now i think it's either before this or after chapter seven it, it could be either place i'm not sure which this is where chapter four probably should be placed if it was placed in a proper place in the, in the narrative, it seems to me. Um, it deals with different characters than what you see in chapter seven, so it could be before or after without changing too much. But if you were to read this for the first time, I would suggest to you, you skip chapter four and then read it after, after chapter six and then go back and, and read it, realizing that there's been a seven-year year gap. It definitely happens before chapter eight. So it, it's, there's a character who's killed 
His death is mentioned in chapter 8. That's in chapter 4. So it must be around this point that the, the chapter takes place. There's also uh, Walt Dangerfield from his satellite is reading this On Human Bondage book, a book written in the 20s. Um, and that's mentioned both, I think, in chapter 7 and maybe 8 and in chapter 4. So it's around this point that that, that, that chapter should be, be placed. Now, the headline character in chapter four is this Mr. Asturias, and he's the teacher and he picks uh, mushrooms. That's his thing. And he doesn't let, he doesn't teach the school children, he doesn't teach the other people in, in West Maris in the community what the proper, you know, mushrooms you can eat are, right? So he kind of keeps this as a private um, skill. But he's got an ulterior motive, and that is he is seeking out Mr. Tree, who he knows is Dr. Bluthgeld, and he wants to, to kill him. Um, some point after chapter four, this gets real. They they find this out and they and the town kill him. Not because he was trying to kill Doctor Bluthgeld, but because he was trying to kill just Mister Tree, who was just a member of their community. So they had to had to execute him. So that happens some point after after the events of chapter four as well. But that's not really what chapter seven's about. Chapter seven is mostly about Dangerfield up in space and a new character, Eldon Blaine. Eldon Blaine is the glasses salesman and he he goes into a pharmacy, that's how the chapter opens, and he's looking for antibiotics for his child. Now he's in, what's the town he's in? He's in Bolinas. So Bolinas, it's, it's near West Marin, so it's like a neighboring community. And, and so they're nearby, but he's traveling to um, you know, to our main setting from Bolinas, you know, to try to find antibiotics for his kid who has some kind of like strep throat or some kind of infection. And he's willing to trade glasses. So he goes into a pharmacy and he says, I can, you know, fix your, 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 your myopia or whatever you need. I have glasses that I can fix that. And, you know, he, the, the, the pharmacist really does want uh, glasses, but he doesn't have the antibiotics that... Uh, Eldon Blaine needs and that's it and that's the scene is like they try to trade they can't trade because they don't have what they need and and Blaine moves on with his life now when I first read this I was struck by this because in a post-apocalyptic setting normally when you have a scene like this where you have one person with something that their site needs you know eventually someone pulls out a gun and starts threatening each other for it, and it becomes a big drama right it's that's the assumption we have about the post-apocalyptic is that Everyone will just be looking out for themselves. People won't be able to cooperate. It'll just be kind of winner take all or, you know, dog eat dog world. And here it's, it was like an honest attempt to trade that, you know, they couldn't quite make it out. But the pharmacist didn't pull out a gun and say, I'm going to take those glasses anyways, even though I don't have the, the, the antibiotics. Or Blaine doesn't pull out his gun and demand to, you know, start rummaging the shelves looking for um, pills for his, for his sick um, child. He just, you know, it's just a mutual understanding that they're not going to be able to make a deal. So then he goes off to West Marin, continuing his quest, looking for um, antibiotics. He goes into the town and he enters it without any trouble. It's it's an open, still a fairly open society. It's not guards with, with guns and it's not a police state, again, like we often see in apocalyptic stories. In fact, we, he sees children attending classes outside and we see that education is going on uh, much as it had before the war 
And he realizes when he talks to people that West Marin will, in fact, trade glasses for antibiotics. In fact, they're, they're eager. They say, we'll find the antibiotics for you. We, we have them. We, we need the glasses. So we, he's welcomed into the town. Now, while this is going on, they begin to talk about Dangerfield and talking about his reading of, of human bondage. We also uh, hear some of Dangerfield's um, chatting because he, he kind of does. He's a natural DJ. And that's the role he's going to play. So he plays music. He takes requests. He also reads books for people and kind of in a serial format so people tune in. Now, like West Marin only has like one or two radios. And one radio Hoppy has and it's like privately owned. The other radio is a collective one and it's in a... What's, what's the place called? Uh, the Forester's Hall is what they call it, where they, they have one radio that everyone can listen to collectively. And they listen to Dangerfield stories, and it becomes kind of like the, the communal TV almost. Um, but he also, Dangerfield tells jokes, he does voices, he, he has a lot of gallows humor about the end of the world that he's kind of good at. So he's kind of the right person to, to have this role of being the kind of accidental DJ for the entire, entire planet. Now, Blaine has been taken to the Rob house, the, the house of... Uh, well, the Robs, the family, R-E-U-B, Mrs. Rob, Mr. Rob, they invite him in, you know, to, you know, while they're going to work out this deal for trading penicillin for glasses or antibiotics of some sort for glasses. And uh, he's kind of impressed by the technology that they have. And they have a whole kind of water supply system. Now, he learns later on that this is due to Hoppy being in West Marin, and he's able to kind of bring in this technology. And, and so the higher level of technological development in West Marin compared to Bolinas, where Blaine is from, it has a lot to do with, with Hoppy Harrigan. Um, and Blaine, he becomes a bit of a villain in this novel because he, he eventually realizes that we need to get Hoppy. We need to either poach him, recruit him over, or just kidnap him and drag him over to Bellinas because we need his expertise and abilities. And this obsession with Hoppy becomes greater and greater when he realizes that Hoppy also has TK powers and, and others. However, the first relationship between Hoppy and Blaine, Eldon Blaine, is a relatively violent one. Hoppy is at the Rob house and he sees Blaine and he sees him alone and or think, assumes that he's a trespasser and then he actually rigged up some kind of trap where he can shoot from his cart this net that traps Blaine uh, kind of with this wet wire mesh net that that holds him down and you know it's a kind of a fun humorous scene where Blaine is talking through this wire mesh scene to Hoppy at the one time, of course, wanting to get out of this and trying to negotiate his way out. But on the other hand, impressed by Hoppy's ability and very jealous that West Marin has access to such a such a, a, a figure, a, a talented techie. Now, sorry about that. I'm car alarm went off. This place in China I'm living is a lot quieter than. The, the place I lived in in Taipei so less background noise to worry about but I'm still on first floor so it's still things things may pop in from time to time so so where was I oh so yeah uh, Blaine begins to realize how important an asset someone like Hoppy could be for for Bellinas. 
Now, in this chip section of the novel, we get a little shout out to Godzilla, um, where Hoppy says something that he heard from Dangerfield. I think that that the nukes woke up sea monsters, you know, that's been slumbering under the depths, and that's I think that's that's the Godzilla story, right? That after the atomic bombs and Hiroshima, that kind of woke up the these ancient monsters who were sleeping under the water. Um, and then we flip to the satellite, and this is a, a scene mostly about Dangerfield, and, and we return right away to a question that we had with Stockstill, the, the psychiatrist, and that is, you know, who are the bad guys? He, and he's actually speaking this out through the, through the radios, under the radio waves. Quote, catch those bad guys. He's, he's praising the veterans and the soldiers. Catch those bad guys. Or should I say, catch those good guys. Say, who are the good guys these days? You know, and that, that question is something we've been struggling with since the beginning of the novel, certainly. There's a lot of gallows humor. There's, you know, Dangerfield really takes on this role as the collective unconscious of the people, giving them a psychological need. Most characters feel a deep, deep need for, to have Dangerfield there. And I think, you know, in a time when communications are broken down, you know, we get news from time to time, like a ship from East Asia is coming to California, or maybe there's be some, the Germans got, you know, drug factories working. Maybe we'll get new drugs from Germany soon. So there's a little bit of global connection still there. But what's really tying the world together is, is Dangerfield, right? Now, obviously, it's the English-speaking world because Dangerfield only speaks English. There's, there's no evidence that he's speaking other languages. But, you know, if we just set that aside, he, you can imagine him creating a, a, a kind of a united consciousness, right? One that's able to have a bit of optimism about the future, right? And it, it is a very... His job is to help psychologically keep humanity together as they rebuild and as they build something new out of the ashes of of the war now he's a very tragic figure though in two ways one is his wife died not long after they were thrust into into space she could not have what you know there's a while they were trying to get him down and they finally couldn't and eventually his wife killed herself when she couldn't take it she couldn't face you know life you know orbiting earth the other tragedy he has is he starts to feel he's getting sick. He starts to have pain in his chest and his torso, and he can't really identify what it is. He he reads medical books because he has all. That's one reason he can read to everyone is he has all these books, you know, that were destined to kind of be sent to Mars. I guess they're like books on like data files and things. But he's able to read medical texts. And he's trying to identify what this problem with him is. If he's got like heart problem or you know cancer or whatever and he's got this and he starts to admit this to the public and this of course creates a ripple effect in which people share this anxiety and worry what will life be like without Dangerfield right we'll lose that that collective experience that we've had I'm reminded of course of like the black box in the short story the black box and Mercerism in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That's the same basic idea. It's that people, you know, they experience the suffering of someone else, but this becomes a way for people to bind themselves together in a, in a massive collective experience. And Dangerfield fits that, right? It's a very different view of media than we get in some other Philip Dick stories from this time, 
where the media becomes something, you know, like in the penultimate truth, the media is just there to trick people and fake people. Here, the media, through Dangerfield, is very honest, right? He tells exactly what he sees and what he feels and what he hears to the people. He doesn't hold anything back. He's, you know, something that's trying to help people. It doesn't have an ulterior, Dangerfield doesn't have an ulterior motive because he has nothing to gain, right? Because he's just in space. He could shut up, I guess, and retire. But that, you know, it keeps, I guess all he has to get out of this is entertainment and that feeling that he has a, a purpose in his, his life orbiting Earth, the Earth endlessly. But it's a very different view of media than what you get in any, most any other Philip Dick story in which the media is always something suspect, dangerous, or corrupting. So after his encounter with Hoppy and he, after he gets the antibiotics, Blaine returns to Bolinas, and he is able to cure his child of, of, of his illness. And he becomes convinced that he has to either recruit Hoppy or kidnap him because he's so impressed by what West Marin had, and he accounts West Marin's success to, to Hoppy. Now, I'm not sure we're supposed to believe that if certainly some of the technological advantages that West Marin has may be due to Hoppy, Harriton, Harrigan's, you know, achievements. But a lot of other people seem to be contributing to what makes West Marion successful. But Ellen Blaine, Elden Blaine, can become convinced that he has to kidnap him. So he's going to basically suggest a trade delegation that goes to West Marion from Bolinas. He'll be part of that. And then his real goal there is going to be to bring back um, Hoppy. Uh, meanwhile, as people get the news that Dangerfield is ill, people panic and worry about about what's going to become of them if Dangerfield dies. All right, if he can no longer be that that unifying force that they that they rely on. So um, then we go to chapter eight. Chapter eight is some set sometime after that weird chapter four situation because characters from chapter four are mentioned here but they're mentioned as having been killed it's basically it's it starts out we're at the school board meeting of west Marin. it's overseen by this guy orrin strahd and they're interviewing a new teacher his new teacher is named barnes and he's from or he's from oregon he's come down he he basically couldn't make it in that town up in oregon so he tried to find this new place to get settled and they needed a new teacher. So he's basically having a job interview for the job of teacher to replace the, the previous teacher, Mr. Austerius, who was, was killed for attempting to kill uh, Mr. Tree or, or Dr. Boothgill. So he gets various questions from the board. Some of them have to do with what kind of teaching he's going to do, why he left Oregon, the kind of things you might expect. But... Barnes is really focusing on, his, his focus on education is really practical. It's about really building up you know, technology and building up you know, survival, building up what is necessary to, to kind of recover from the war. So he thinks the purpose of education really needs to be practical. And he does have like a copy of Jung and they question him on that, but he, he insists that, you know, I'm not for theoretical knowledge. I'm here to give your children practical knowledge. And then the question of the mushrooms comes up because I guess they have a lot of mushrooms there in West Marin. And 
Barnes offers to, not only does he prove that he knows which mushrooms are dangerous and poisonous, he offers to teach everyone in the town and the children how to pick the right mushrooms, which was something that the previous teacher kept for himself as a kind of a private knowledge. So he eventually gets the job. They do tell him about the, the reason they had to kill the previous teacher and that he was looking for, for Mr. Tree. And he seemed to have, you know, he had the intention to kill Mr. Tree. And um, Barnes also suggests that they get involved in paper making, and which is something they wanted to do, but they didn't know how. So he's really focusing on promoting practical, practical knowledge for, for West Marin. So then we, we, we catch up with Stuart McConchie, who's, who's not really in West Marin. He's, he's somewhere doing this whole kind of job. Like before he was selling TVs, now he's selling uh, traps. These are traps that, like robotic automated traps that will actually seek out rats, right? And go into their dens and things and, and kill them. Um, so homeostatic traps is what they're called. I, I think they came up before in some of Dick's other, other writings, or at least I heard something similar to that. I think maybe it was that story, right? The Game of Unchance. They, they talked about homeostatic traps in, in that story. Um, but he's, on the one hand, he's selling these traps, so he's going around selling them. And he's a good salesperson. He talks about things like, you know, I like rats, but we can't let them evolve. I think we can't let them go run wild. We need to focus on, you know, the needs of humanity now. And so everyone has to do their part, and that means buying these, these traps. He works for a man, you know, Mr. Hardy, who, who makes these traps and, and, and he sells them. Now, Mr. Hardy, it turns out, is a lot like Mr. Ferguson and that he's kind of a liberal and open-minded. And again, we find Stewart as a character who really can't progress. He's kind of stuck doing the same kind of job, even working for the same type of people. He, you know, that's his arc, such as it is in this novel, is really about him achieving independence and, and breaking free of his paralysis. But anyways, in, in this scene, Stuart McConchie is actually seeking out, uh, you know, following rumors about a man who discovered a rocket. And that rocket was in, broken down for parts, and the man was trying to sell these parts. And Stuart wants to buy a lot of these parts to take back to, to Mr. Hardy, who will need those parts to build his, his traps. He meets people on the way, and he meets one guy in particular, and they talk about buying traps. They talk about the future. They talk about rats and evolution and it's kind of a fun little conversation and they also mention andrew gill who has made quite a name for himself as a seller of cigarettes and he's one of the few people who are making cigarettes out in california and he's the guy you have to go to and they're, they're like five cents each of and there's different currencies here there's like one currency that's more like the paper currency that some people don't trust and there's like actual metal currency that's in circulation and so the cigarettes are kind of expensive, but, you know, they're the only ones you can get. They're not made out of real tobacco. They're made out of some kind of other herbs and weeds. But that's, that's Gil's specialty. Now, um, after this, we pick up again with, with Barnes back in West Marion. He's gotten this job as a teacher. So he's meeting different people, and he meets Bonnie Keller. And Bonnie Keller immediately begins to flirt with Barnes. And we learn that... Bonnie and Gil had been meeting up regularly since their first hookup, you know, at the, on the day of the war. They've been having an affair, and she's had affairs with others. Um, Barnes asked a little bit about Mr. Tree because he knows that the previous teacher was killed, uh, you know, over Mr. Tree. So he asked Bonnie a little bit about Mr. Tree. But mostly what they talk about is, 
you know, the, the music group that they've started in West Marin, you know, Bonnie's part of it. I think Gil is part of it and a few others are part of this music group and they're trying to recreate music. Unfortunately, the string instruments are mostly all destroyed in the war. So pretty much anything brass or metal had survived. So they can do like a lot of Baroque music. They have trouble with classical uh, because they don't have cellos and violins and things. Uh, Barnes, you know, used to play cello, but he can't get a hold of one. So eventually they talk about maybe making a cello, which of course is the, the, the proper response to the fact that there are no cellos survived the war. I think that's, Dick is trying to remind us that there's no reason to be fatalistic about these things, right? That just because all the cellos were destroyed doesn't mean we can't relearn how to make cellos. Barnes then eventually does meet Jack Tree um, because Bonnie has, has remained good, kept good relations with Jack Tree and has protected him and, and covered for his name and made sure people didn't know that he was um, blue scaled. I think the only two people who really know that would be Stockstill would know that and, and Bonnie, Bonnie know his true identity. Nevertheless, after meeting Barnes, Jack Tree, Dr. Boothgeld has intense anxieties about Barnes and what Barnes, you know, that the, the last teacher tried to find him and kill him, and maybe this teacher will too. He still carries along a lot of guilt and a lot of fear of assassination. So Boothgeld is another character who's struggling to break free of old patterns, the patterns that he had from before the war. He has the same sort of mental illnesses plaguing him that he had at the start of of the novel. So chapter nine. Chapter nine opens with Stuart McConchie returning from this side quest to get these rocket parts which he fails at. Um, and he comes back to his cart and the horse and he finds that the horse has been killed and eaten by what do you presume they're like war veterans that are hanging out there and that's what other people think that when they hear the news think the same thing it's probably they were the culprit. Uh, this is, of course, a, a horrendous ethical violation because horses are so valuable in the post-war world and to, to use them for meat is, is pretty offensive to Stuart McConchie above and beyond the, the personal setback it is for him. It also means he can't take his cart of stuff back with him to Mr. Hardy because he doesn't, you know, doesn't have a horse. Um, so basically, Stuart spends this part of the chapter moping around, looking f about you know his the lack of progress and his need to get something new out of life maybe some new work or something he, feeling that he's kind of doing the same kind of stuff he always he always has and in fact he is he's, he's just a, a servant uh, for a kind of benevolent liberal type and still unable to to really move ahead in life in any significant way he eventually goes back to mr hardy who the man who makes the vermin traps and his employer and he really is meant to be compared to Jim Ferguson. And in fact, Stuart quite consciously realizes that he's working for the same kind of person years later, which again is another symbol of, of just how stuck he is. He both more or less forgives Stuart for the loss of his horse. He doesn't punish him or charge him, even though it's, it's a serious financial blow to, to the company. Um, Stewart starts to say, though, that he needs something new in life and he wants to perhaps move to the countryside, maybe start new businesses. And he has some ideas of different businesses he can try. And Mr. Hardy 
you know, again, at the one hand, he's, he seems to be wanting to do the right thing for Stewart, warning him that we're still pretty racist there, and all the old habits came back as soon as the war broke out. You're better off here with me in the more urban areas. But, you know, at the same time, he's trying to keep him almost as an indentured servant, kept, like, you know, doesn't want to lose him to, to his own ambitions for something new in life. So for all his, I guess, good intentions, Mr. Hardy is essentially keeping keeping um, Stuart stuck. And you know, they have various other conversations and, and one of one they have is they talk about Andrew Gill's goods as well. Um, and they desire to have some liquor and we learn how just how famous Gill is, something that's been sprinkled in the in the, in the previous chapter as well. That Gill's Andrew Gill's a very famous guy now for his his cigarettes and to a lesser degree his his liquor. But the main theme we have in chapter nine is the need for Stuart to to have some growth. Now this is paralleled in the second half of the chapter, which is our first really close look at, at Eddie Keller. Eddie Keller is the seven-year-old daughter of, of Bonnie Keller. She was conceived most likely by Andrew Gill on, that, on the day of the war. And she, as we learned back in chapter four, uh, she has this younger brother inside of her, this fetus that never matured, and she's able to communicate with him. Now, most of the time, this brother, Bill, just sort of sleeps. And once in a while, he's awake, though, and he can talk through psychic connections to, to Eddie. And so she talks about Bill, and everyone just presumes that she's nutty or she has an imaginary friend or something. But she always talks about it as my brother. And, you know, Bonnie thinks she's going nuts. A lot of other people do. And so a lot of this chapter is about Eddie sitting down with Dr. Stocksdale, the psychiatrist, to work, work this out. Stocksdale eventually does diagnose her as having this brother inside of her, and he thinks it's plausible that perhaps she is able to communicate with him. And, you know, he says, you know, it's not really going to hurt her. We really don't have the surgical techniques to get rid of it, even if, you know, even if that was wise to do. We, we couldn't really do it. And it's not hurting her. So he eventually tells Bonnie Keller that she's just a normal kid. She's got a benign tumor in her belly and she'll, she'll be fine. So he kind of gives her a clear bill of, bill of health, but realizes that there is some kind of entity, perhaps of a baby brother inside of, of Eddie Keller. But there's not much he can do about it medically. Now, another reason he doesn't want to emphasize the fact that she has a brother inside of her is the law. And it's funny that there's still kind of a state government that still functions. And again, unlike a lot of post-apocalyptic novels, we have a, essentially a, a functioning government in this one. It, the whole society hasn't broken apart you know, quite yet. There's still laws, there's still governments that can enforce laws to a certain degree. And one of these is that all quote-unquote funny people, which are people with any kind of mutation or psychic ability, anything that's a post-human kind of transformation, have to be registered and maybe even subject to some kind of controls and prohibitions by this, the state. And Stock still doesn't want to put Eddie through that. So she doesn't, he doesn't want um, her to to suffer that. Um, now, other things that happen in this chapter, well, uh, when Bonnie and Stocksdale talk about 
Eddie, they also talk about the fact that maybe they should expand the band in, to include string instruments and cellos. And now that they have barns, and maybe they could actually make a cello, and they talk about ways to do that. And we also learn conclusively that Stockdale and Bonnie had an affair as well. You know, it's, there's, there's probably no one in West Marin that Bonnie probably didn't sleep with at some point. She's presented as, as very promiscuous in this novel, but she's still essentially a, a good person and even to a certain degree a good wife to George. You never see George complain about Bonnie's affairs that, that I saw anyways. If, if any of you have different opinions about this, let me know. But you know, I, I think often this adulterous wife figure comes off kind of shrill and nasty in a lot of Dick's stories or especially like in Now Wait for Last Year or Clans of the Elfine Moon. But here we have essentially a good person, a really essentially moral person who has this one, I guess, character flaw, if you want to call it that, that she's, she's kind of seeking out a meaningful relationship with many people and she uses sex as a way to, to connect with people. Now it often fails, right? She's a, you know, a serial adulteress who never really finds what she's looking for in any of the relationships. And, and that's part of her character arc, as we'll see towards the end of the novel. Uh, in chapter 10, we're, 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 we're given a, essentially a public meeting in, at the Foresters Hall where the, the whole town is getting together to discuss Dangerfield. Now, there's not much they can do about Dangerfield, but they, they are trying to prepare each other for what may happen, trying to maybe see if there's any way they can help Dangerfield. There's not much they can do like sending a medicine, but maybe if someone can diagnose or whatever. They, they can discuss that. Now, Hoppy arrives in his little cart, and he is able to impersonate Dangerfield. And now his solution essentially is, like, if Dangerfield dies, I can just take over the job, right? I can, I can get on the radio, and I can sound dust just like Dangerfield. And he actually shows off that he can impersonate Dangerfield pretty well. This is going to be very important shortly in, in the story. Uh, Blaine is there. And he, of course, still wants to kidnap Poppy. And he sees, and so, so does everyone else in the town hall, they see some of Poppy's magic, which is essentially TK telekinesis. He can move around coins and stuff. And he definitely now wants to steal Hoppy more than ever. Uh, because he thinks that if Dangerfield dies, then I have someone who can fulfill that Dangerfield role, right? I have someone who can speak in Dangerfield's voice. And no one else will have that. So that would be a the big boon. So Blaine becomes more and more villainous as his ambition for owning and controlling Hoppy becomes greater and greater. He learns that Hoppy also has a secondary radio, and or he actually can, can, he kind of deduces that Hoppy must have a secondary radio, which he was listening to, and that's how in practicing when he was practicing how to emulate uh, Dangerfield. And then he's, again, just overall impressed by the wealth of West Maris, which he sees essentially as part of an extension of their control and their possession of this man, Hoppy. Now, it, by and large, this is a pretty optimistic view of, of the end of the world, as I talked about earlier in this episode. But from time to time, we do get the dark side of all this. And one of that is that there's a, there seems to be a great de degree of inequality between the communities. And this is something that Blaine thinks about in this chapter. He says, just then he understood, it was obvious. The Fulcomoclus had a radio receiver at his house before coming to the Forester's Hall. He had sat by himself in his house listening to the satellite. That meant there were two functioning radios in West Marin, compared with none at all in Bolinas. 
Alden felt rage and despair. We have nothing, he realized. And these people here have everything, even an extra private radio set for just one person alone. It's like before the war, he thought finally. They're living as good as then. It's not fair. End quote. Now, you know, I, I think that's a theme that runs through this is to what degree are we able to break free of our old ways? I, I think what Dick is trying to get at here, to be honest, I think he's trying to get at the potential for a frontier here on Earth. What would it take to create frontier conditions? And the easy answer for that is a war, right? And we get the promise of the frontier back, something that's been missing on a lot of Dick's works from the 1960s, but the promise of the frontier comes back, but it comes back as a, as a, as a remaking the world after a flood almost. And that's, that's how we can do it. It's only, it is kind of a Noah's Ark sort of narrative here. But there's failures to it because there's all the a lot of characters are still hung hanging onto their old, old habits and traditions and not finding a new progressive place for themselves in the new world. Inequality remains, you know, things like that. Now Hoppy is doing his impression, and Eddie, now just a seven-year-old girl, so she's very very impressive, but Eddie. Uh, decides she wants to confront Hoppy. And the way she does this is she wants, well, she starts out, she wants to see that Bill here, Dangerfield. And she's sick of kind of Hoppy dominating the stage. And she wants to turn on the radio and listen to Dangerfield like normal because that's what Bill wants. So she starts to talk about Bill wants this, Bill wants that. And then Hoppy starts to openly mock this little girl, this little seven-year-old girl over Bill and over this kind of imaginary friend she has from his perspective, an imaginary friend. And then Bill kind of takes control here and Bill wakes up and he decides he's going to try to communicate with Hoppy. You know, and he does it telepathically, essentially. And then Hoppy becomes incredibly terrified when he realizes that this creature inside of Ed, Eddie is, you know, talking to him through kind of a, a psychic power. Maybe it's because they're both post-humans that they're that's one reason they're able to join minds but this joining of minds terrifies hoppy and he realizes that he has a, has a serious enemy here in in this bill eddie offers to show bill to to hoppy which hop scares hoppy even further now i think hoppy eventually does get an image of what bill looks like in his mind it's like kind of a gray shriveled little little thing um But um, over the course of these last two chapters, Bill has been revealed to, to two characters, essentially, to, to Stockstill, and of course, Eddie, I was known about him, but then in addition to, to a villainous character of, of Hoppy. Now, we do learn that, that like, Bill and Eddie have a very strange kind of childish relationship at times, and they bicker from time to time. They, they kind of play tricks on each other. They do kind of teasing rhymes to one another. They threaten each other, you know, and it's kind of fun to watch these two kids because remember, they're just seven years old and, you know, they have this special relationship, but they're still kids, which is fun to read about. And there's just a few passages like that, but they come in this chapter. Um, but the important thing here is that Bill seems to be kind of waking to kind of a full consciousness of himself and to his powers. And that's going to be important in the climax of the story. Now, as chapter 10 ends, Blaine has finally decided he's going to make a move to kidnap Hoppy. And he tries to do that, and then he kind of goes into Hoppy's 
room with his radio and things and he realizes well Hoppy more or less confesses his plan to to Blaine it's kind of like a supervillain scene where you know the the hero comes in to try to get to the bad guy and the the bad guy has the upper hand and then he uses the time to, to reveal his evil secret plan eventually what Hoppy's plan is is to destroy the force that's preserving the old what he sees as the old world now I would argue that Dangerfield you know, Hoppy's plan has a lot to do with Dangerfield, but I would argue that Dangerfield is presenting something new. It's not the old media. It's not the media of lies and corruption and falsehood. It's not the media of the penultimate truth. It's a media of honesty, of humor, of solidarity. But nevertheless, Hoppy sees that as something that's preserving a culture that's not letting him reach his full potential, right? He needs the full destruction of the world for him to rise up. That's what he thought before the, the beginning of the novel. He thought that early on in the first pages. So he needs to destroy Dangerfield. And the way he's going to do that is by taking over Dangerfield. He's going to use his technology and his ability to mimic Dangerfield's voice to essentially take over the role of Dangerfield. And the fact that Dangerfield may be dying is so much better. It'll just allow him to fill in that, that role. And then from there, he's able to then, you know, he'd have this absolute power over, over the whole earth. And his ultimate power would be to then just kill this unifying force altogether. Um, so Eldon says, then you'll be Dangerfield. The Fulchemoclus smiled and stammered, and no one will know the difference. I can pull it off. I've got everything worked out. What's the alternative? Silence? The satellite will fall silent any day now. And then the one voice that unifies the world will be gone and the world will decay. I'm ready to cut Dangerfield off at any moment now, as soon as I'm positive that he's going to cease. And then Hoppy, after revealing his evil plan, just kills, straight up kills Blaine. Um, and Blaine was going to try to kidnap him anyway, so no one really mourns the loss of Blaine. I guess he was a family guy. He didn't seem horrible, but he does become sort of a secondary villain by this point in the novel. Um, chapter 11, we, we see the, the aftermath of Blaine's death. It, it shows up in the newspapers. And, and we get a little section where we're introduced to the West Marin News and View, which is the newspaper, the twice-monthly newsletter that's put out in West Marin to, you know, basically the, the local media, right? We've seen the global media with Dangerfield in his satellite. This is the local media, and it's run by a guy named Paul Dietz. He's kind of a minor character here, but you know, it's kind of cool. It deals with a lot of local issues, a lot of local news and producers. Um, you know, advertising for people like Andrew Gill. He does a lot of his advertising through this, so it, it provides an important local local function. So it might be worth taking a closer look at what's said here in this section about you know, kind of Dick's views, perhaps, of a, of a more local, grassrooted media. Uh, now, Paul Dietz himself is interested in the Blaine case, the murder of Blaine, because it does become kind of a local murder mystery, and for, for him at least. Now, meanwhile, Hoppy, after having killed Blaine, is, is totally terrified of Bill. That's his focus of his mind at this point. He sees that his real threat, the real threat to his plan and the real threat to his you know, achieving his goals is this essentially a fetus inside of a little girl, Bill. How Dick thought this up, I, I don't know. It's now of course Dick did have a twin sister who 
died. I, I don't know if if she died right like right after they were born or if she I think it was they were they were twins and then the sister died. So he you know had a lot of guilt over that throughout his life and and here it's almost like the inverse, right? The girl survives and, and the boy survives in this kind of weird weird state. That that's something of that is going on here, I think. Dick is thinking about that, but nevertheless, it's the, the imagination that went into imagining that the, this kind of villain of this guy with no arms and no legs and this mechanized cart could being confronted by a little fetus creature with psychic powers. It's it's wonderful stuff. Um, but anyways, Hoppy runs into Stockstill, and Stockstill questions him right away about Eddie Keller and. Or no, sorry, Poppy questions Stockstill about Eddie Keller and says, you know, you really got to put that girl away because she's a funny girl. And, you know, the law is you got to put those funny funny kids, you know, register them and send them away because he wants to just get rid of Eddie Keller and be away from, from Bill. Um, they see Mikotchki, who Stuart Mikotchki, who's come. Now he kind of enters the story in West Marin. He's, he's there to see Andrew Gill and he's there to kind of sell him uh, a device for rolling cigarettes. And we'll learn more about that later on but he kind of enters into the story at this point and he sees it and he sees this figure from the fat past and that also sort of freaks out hoppy because you know at, at first he wonders is this a ghost or is this a manifestation of bill is bill messing with me again through his you know the way he did before now Stockstill figures out pretty quickly that blaine had something or hoppy had something to do with the death of blaine and and hoppy confesses he says i didn't do anything wrong he was an outsider and we have you know, no laws against protecting these outsiders. They, 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 do, they do kind of engage in some mutual threats and banter for a while. And Stuart comes in and enters the scene and, and confronts Hoppy. And Hoppy realizes that this isn't just a manifestation of, of Bill. It's Bill's mind. This is a real person or from his past who's shown up. And Stuart does challenge Hoppy's abilities as well, as well seeing him as a funny mouse. Now, he had just, of course, accused Eddie of being a funny, funny person is what the, the term is throughout the novel. Stewart's challenging him as funny, and Stewart never liked Hoppy, of course, from the early part of it. But what really bothers Hoppy about Stewart is that Stewart does not feel frightened by him. He doesn't have that fear of, of Hoppy that other people have. And again, the, this past that Hoppy wants to get away from is is weakening him and undermining him in this character of Stuart. Now, Stuart's a character who's also burdened by the past and not able to fully embrace the new world in, a, in a, what I think is kind of a progressive way. He starts to get to that point here with his, this new business endeavor he's on, but he's still kind of burdened by the past. They, both Hoppy and Stuart have different relationships with the past, even though they, and they cross paths just that one day before the war. Hoppy eventually makes a, veiled, a vague threat to him, and then Stuart deflects it and, and convinces Hoppy to take him to go see Andrew Gill. And the chapter ends with Stuart and Andrew Gill having a conversation. Andrew Gill is, or Stuart's trying to sell to Andrew Gill a cigarette rolling machine that, that he helped invent. And you know, he's kind of selling that on behalf of Hardy, but it's kind of his initiative. And they have a little bit of a negotiation. We learn a little bit about the homeostatic traps as well in this, this section. Now, Stuart's able to also bring a lot of news about the outside world because he comes from a more urban area, you know, a little more connected, not so kind of countryside as West Marin. And he's able to bring news about how the government and the military are building new roads, helping to pair infrastructure, and even to show a letter 
that was delivered to his boss with a canceled stamp on it that's showing that even mail service has started up again. So, you know, the world is beginning to, to kick back into gear. And this is something that, that kind of impresses uh, Gil. Now, chapter 12. Chapter 12 focuses on Eddie and Bill's plot against Happy. And Bill is trying to push Eddie to see if he can kind of project himself into an animal. And he says, like, maybe I can get my mind, you know, into the mind of an animal and then I'll be able to move around. Because he's been obsessed really from the time we met Bill with this idea of, of, of being born. Is there a way that I can be born? I can leave this body that I'm stuck into and actually become a fully fledged individual in a way. And one way he imagines he can do this is by kind of entering the mind of of little animals and so he's trying to convince Eddie to like find a snail or a slug or something and to put it up against his belly you know so they're kind of touching almost then maybe he can like project his mind into that they play also play kids games in this scene in the scene so despite this kind of plotting they're doing against Hoppy they still have time to play little kids games and Eddie goes to a playground with other kids and it's another reminder that we're dealing with a child who's only seven years old Barnes is there, and Barnes meets Eddie and, and talks to her a bit. And by this point, Barnes and Bonnie Keller have already started their affair. So it's, I think this might be, though, the first time that Eddie and Barnes have any kind of conversation. Um, she says something, Eddie says something to Barnes that makes him think that she already knows about his relationship with, with Bonnie, with, with, with her mother. So later on, we see Barnes and Bonnie in bed together after having sex and he starts to ask about you know does Eddie know about the affair or whatever and this really annoys Bonnie because Bonnie has never been shy about her affairs and her adultery and she actually thinks back to Gil she says Gil was a much better lover because he would just we would just have sex like you know on the side of the road in a car or whatever and whoever knew, knew it didn't matter Andrew Gill wasn't this skittish and secretive about his identity now Barnes has good reasons though to be a bit worried because the previous teacher was killed and he wonders if maybe that he had an affair with Bonnie and that had something to do with um, him being killed and eventually they get into a big fight over their goals in life and Barnes and Bonnie are both kind of searching for something and you know Barnes is much more judgmental, I think, about Bonnie's past, and this offends her. And they end up having a, a big scuffle over this. So then they, this, you know, she says, I want to go hear Dangerfield. So I'm going to the hall. And Barnes eventually, you know, gives up and, and lets her go. Now, on the way to the hall, they see Tree and Stockstill together. And Tree talks about how he saw Stuart. Now, Stuart, he saw Stuart when he passed the TV repair shop or the TV sales store in the first chapter on his way to Stocksdale. And he remembers seeing Stuart and the Conchie outside there. And he sees Stuart again. And he says, like, the day the war began, I saw this guy. Now I see him again. And this is the omen that the war is going to start again. And that's what Tree is saying. And Bonnie and, you know, Stocksdale try to calm him down and say it's just a coincidence or maybe it's not the same guy but Bluthgeld is convinced Mr. Tree Bluthgeld is convinced that this is the same person and that war is going to start once again and that he's going to be the center of it so he's kind of redo full gets full into his paranoia once again 
Quote, now I must begin again, Bruno Bluthgeld thought to himself, the war, because there is no choice. It is forced upon me. I'm sorry for the people. All of them will have to suffer, but perhaps out of it they will be redeemed. Perhaps in the long run it's a good thing. He seated himself, folded his hands, shut his eyes, and concentrated on the task of assembling his powers. Row, he said to them, the forces at his command, everyone in the world, join and become potent as you were in former times. There is need for you again in all ye agencies. And he's about ready to unleash his power. Now, it's, it's not clear that he really has this ability, but he certainly has always thought he is the center of the universe. As I said before, he's the, the symbol of the technocratic person who thinks everything, the world revolves around, around him and his decisions and his powers and his abilities. Um, now, the chapter ends, though, with... Uh, with Dangerfield's voice coming off the radio, once again the community is coming together to to listen to Walt Dangerfield make his his all important broadcasts to the world. But the most important thing that happens in these chapter or this chapter is really Dr. Bluthgeld's kind of reclaiming of his identity as as Dr. Bluthgeld. He's no longer Mr. Tree. He's kind of claimed for himself this historical mission. And once again, the question is introduced of whether he has these powers that he believes he has. He has the power to uh, either reform the world or destroy it at, at will. But at this point, he's, he's kind of embraced the destructive side of his personality. And so his, his persona as Mr. Tree since the, since the war has really been one of hoping for redemption and repairing the the damage that he thinks he's done, but he's sort of abandoned that and he's kind of fully committed the nihilism of, of destruction. And, and that's where we, we leave off. And this leads us right to our climax of the last four, four chapters of, of the novel. Chapter 13 opens with, with Bill Keller really uh, experimenting, continuing a series of experiments with his sister to try to see if he can move his consciousness outside of his, his body. They were talking before about doing it with like a snail or something, and and Ed Keller is actually able to put Bill's mind into that of a worm, and this horrifies Bill, who is expecting to be able to see things. Instead, he's put into a a creature that's not so different from him, blind, not really able to move, and but he has this ability then to truly really swap minds and to take over other people's conscious consciousness and to take over their body. So. This is going to become a, a question that Edie and Bill go into over the course of this chapter, which is going to be, should Bill just swap? If, if, if Edie wants her actual brother, she should just swap minds with someone. And yeah, Edie will have someone else inside her, her stomach, inside her body. But maybe, you know, he, she would have a brother that would walk and talk, but who to switch with? Uh, another thing we learn about Bill, and this is kind of alluded to earlier in the story too, is that he can talk to the dead. He has this ability to to speak with dead people. And so he's able to speak with like uh, Hoppy's previous victim, right? Blaine, that guy he killed. And later on after Bluthgeld is killed, actually it happens in this chapter, he's able to talk to Bluthgeld. And it's really through this conversations with the dead that the, the Keller children are warned about the danger that Hoppy presents. And it's, it's kind of interesting how Bonnie Keller is going to come to the same conclusion of Hoppy's danger and she's going to try to flee. And Edie and Bill are also realizing through these conversations with the dead how just how dangerous this this guy is, this young man is. I guess how old is Happy by this point? So he's like twenty five or so. 
Now, meanwhile, Walt Dangerfield is watching from his satellite, as he always does it, you know, while he's preparing reports. He, he likes reporting on weather and things, so he's often watching. And he starts to see the explosions on Earth, and he sees the war beginning. And, and here's where the, you know, it seems that Dr. Boothgeld is able to restart the war. Now, was there another reason for it? Is it once again just... Boothgeld falling into his paranoia and his assumption that he's the center of the universe, his megalomania. Is it just coming back again and there's some other reason for the explosions? It's really ambiguous here. I don't think Dick means to give an answer to whether Boothgeld has these powers, but it does seem there actually are explosions going off again and the war has been resumed. And I think to, to the to the I think a major theme of this book is this failure of certain characters to kind of get out of old habits and and break free even in the context of a new world Stuart certainly that way hoppy sees opportunity in the new world but he kind of keeps his same vices and and grievances he doesn't even though he's like a crucially important member of the community he doesn't really see himself as valued in the same way so he wants to kind of use his powers to move up it's really the young children who have a potential to to maybe imagine something new uh, certainly Edie and Bill to a degree. It's kind of like that short story, The Days of Perky Pat, where we see after the war, the adults kind of stuck to same patterns, playing little toys, dolls, playing out their old life. And it's actually the children who, who are moving forward in their lives because they don't have the pre-war world to kind of be a burden for them. But anyways, uh, Dangerfield sees the explosions going off. Uh, just kind of the old pattern of Dr. Boothgeld, I guess. Edie and Bill bicker about Bill being put into a worm, and, and Bill's pretty upset with that. Then they start to really talk seriously about a plan to move Bill into another body permanently. And then there they go kind of list the people it might be. One option is this talking dog. That's kind of a... Yeah, because the... I think, yeah, it's the... the is it the... The Kellers are doing like sheep raising. Oh, yeah, it's Mr. Tree, and I think Bonnie Keller's living with them. They're like raising sheep, and they have this sheep dog that can sort of talk. It's kind of a mutant sheep dog. And, you know, the idea is well, maybe we can put you in the dog. Another option was Mr. Tree, because Mr. Tree really wouldn't be missed, and he was kind of a weirdo going nuts anyway, so maybe that could be a solution. And then the other two options, interestingly, are, are their parents. They both offer, maybe you can go to dad, or maybe you can go to mom. And by this point, Edie Keller knows that his, her mother's having affairs with other men in town, and, and Edie's a bit sore about that. And she sees swapping Bill for her mother, or for her father, or, or uh, Barnes, any, any of those kind of people could be a way of, of stopping those, those trysts and, and changing her mom's behavior. But it would mean kind of losing her mother as a as an individual being. Of course, they're essentially talking about murdering someone for all intents and purposes because it's really a mind-swapping phenomenon. It's not, it's not like Bill's going to borrow a body for a time. It's really um, a switch. Now, Bonnie and Barnes are, are talking and they're really coming to terms with the fact that maybe Mr. True really does pose a threat. And even Bonnie, who has protected... Uh, Dr. Bluthfeld for so long for so many years protecting his identity even she at one point she gets like thrown from her course because of one of these explosions going off and she realizes that maybe she has to be taken out because he's unhinged he's, he's kind of fallen back into his old paranoid habits and, he, and he's a real potential danger and the real though sad thing in this chapter is I think Bonnie reflecting on the futility of all the rebuilding efforts that the community has gone into it's 
it's kind of a somber moment where she thinks, you know, it doesn't matter what we rebuild. It's just going to be torn down again. It, again, I think the subtext here is if we stick in the same patterns, if we don't really learn from the, the previous world and take these, you know, and remake ourselves in the context of this war and its aftermath, if we're just going to fall into the same patterns and rebuilding is not going to matter, right? It's got to be something new. Here's what she writes about the world they built up, which is how fragile and, and, and flawed it is. Quote, Our little fragile world, Bonnie thought, that we labor to build up after the emergency, this puny society with our tattered school books, our deluxe cigarettes, and our wood-burning trucks, it can't stand much punishment. It can't stand this that Bruno is doing or appears to be doing. One blow again directed at us and we'll be gone. The brilliant animals will perish. All the new odd species will disappear suddenly as they arrived. Too bad, she thought with grief. It's unfair. Terry, the verbose dog, him too. Maybe we were too ambitious. Maybe we shouldn't have dared to try to rebuild and go on. I think we did pretty well, she thought, all in all. We've been alive. We've made love and drunk Gil's five-star. Taught our kids in this peculiar windowed school building. Put out news and views. Cranked up the car radio and listened daily to the W. Somerset Maugham. What more could be asked for? Christ, she thought. It isn't fair, this thing now. It isn't right at all. We have our horses to protect our crops, our lives. And she's thinking this in the context of explosions going off, and she's thinking really that the end of humanity is coming. And you almost got kind of a myth of Sisyphus argument, really. With, if there's no point to life, if really there's, there's no overriding purpose, then what are we doing? We're just kind of waste spinning our wheels until, until the end of time. Now, the question of whether they should take action against Mr. Tree is resolved, though, as Mr. Tree, or Dr. Bluthgeld, is thrown up into the air and then sent back crashing to the ground and, and crushed. Uh, it's, it's a teak ability, and it's clearly being done by Hoppy, uh, who from afar noticed. Now, there's a, it's not really clear why he chose to do this. Maybe he felt that there was the threat. He wanted to protect the town from the threat that Mr. Tree had. Maybe he saw Mr. You know, Bluthgeld as uncontrollable force. Or maybe he, he saw this as an opportunity to move up in, in local society. But for whatever reason, he kills Dr. Bluthgeld, putting to the end the threat of war being, being resumed. And that, that's the story of, of Dr. Blood Money. At least his part of the tale is done. So chapter 14 is said sometime later, not long after, um, but by this point the news of Boothgelt's death has spread all about the community and there's a meeting in the Forester's Hall. Basically the, the point of this meeting is to, is to honor Hoppy and then there's a mixture. It, it seems, you know, once the news got out that Tree was Dr. Boothgelt and that he was a war criminal, and he, he caused all this suffering and he's been in hiding and, and, and maybe should be punished. You know, there's kind of an agreement that it's not really about punishing Hoppy, that he was defending the community in this crisis period, that although he didn't go through the legal methods, like when they killed the teacher earlier, it was still a, 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 a justifiable act. In fact, it was almost a heroic act. Now, it did, they talk about Hoppy as being magical, and they talk about Bluthgeld as being magical. And there's almost, I don't know if I want to read too much into this, but you get the sense that there's kind of a return of superstition, right? To the degree that Blood Money and, or Bluthgeld, I should say, and you know, the doc, term Dr. Blood Money actually comes up later in the novel where Hoppy uses it almost as a pejorative way to kind of insult Bluthgeld. Uh, but... You know, the, the fact that they talk about these not as teak, 
which I guess would be the science science fiction explanation as essentially magic, I think is is relevant. And maybe we see the the, the emergence of superstition uh, once again. And uh, largely, what they're trying to debate here is how to honor Hoppy. And there's different suggestions. Gil promises all these cigarettes and drink and alcohol to him, so they're going to collect goodies a goodie bag for, for Hoppy. Some suggest that they build like a statue. Others want to give him a position in town. And they kind of agree to send a delegation to offer these gifts and to, and to see what he wants and to, and to basically lift him up as a, as a heroic member of the community. Now with the one brief aside where they, they kind of debate whether vigilantism should be allowed in the future, they, they set that aside very quickly and, and come to the conclusion that yes, it was crucial that, that Hoppy acted as he did. Now, Bonnie is questioned about whether what she knows about Boothgeld in this public meeting. And there's a, you know, she doesn't really face any severe consequences, but she is sort of publicly shamed for hiding the identity of Boothgeld for so long. And it's around this time when Bonnie sees, and she's helpless to stop it, you know, this kind of praising of Hoppy and this uplifting him into kind of government. You know, he's got a really bright future in, in West Marin now. She starts to think that maybe she should leave West Marin and moved to somewhere else. And I think this is an important breakthrough for her character and that like Stuart, how he was able to break free being a salesman and became much more of an entrepreneur working with Gil. Bonnie is going to try to find something new in her life and not just kind of stay in the same pattern of, of adultery and affairs and all that. After this meeting with the town meeting where they talk about how to honor Hoppy, Dr. Stockstill and Hoppy together work to reach Dangerfield and talk to him. And, and basically Stockstill's agenda here is to try to fix whatever is ailing Dangerfield, you know, this kind of feeling he has. And, you know, if it's physiological, there's not much they can do. You know, maybe Dangerfield says maybe I can synthesize some drugs. But Stockstill seems to believe that maybe psychotherapy can help. So he, he tries to make him do tests and, and comes to the idea of maybe die of treating him for mental illness, that maybe his diseases are psychosomatic. My reading of this novel, though, suggests that Dangerfield's illnesses have a lot to do with Hoppy, that Hoppy is using his abilities to, to sicken and weaken Dangerfield because of his overall plan to take over that role of, of voice of, of the world and to destroy that unifying force, something that Hoppy is seen as a, is seen as a threat, and he's willing to attack threats. He, of course, attacked Dr. Tree, attacked Blaine earlier, He's going to even try to murder Bill, Bill Keller, in the, in the next chapter. But there's an interesting conversation where Dangerfield is increasingly panicked and terrified of his future. And Stockdale is trying to talk him through what he should do, even like, you know, trying carbon dioxide poisoning to, to do different tests, you know, by breathing into a bag. And Dangerfield is kind of at wit's end thinking, you know, that this is not going to help me. I really need drugs or whatever. Gil eventually um, does arrive to meet Hoppy with his reward. He's part of this entourage of people coming to honor and praise Hoppy for his service to the community. And that, that's more or less how chapter 14 ends. It's mostly about this, the aftermath of the death of Tree, the death of Boothgeld, and the honoring of, of Hoppy. Hoppy's being raised up to be a, a pinnacle of the community. And we who know Hoppy very well by this point see this in a more nefarious way than most of the characters do who, who have come to see Hoppy as really an essential part of their community, their, their value tech. But now with his abilities, perhaps having you know, advantages and benefits 
far beyond just the ability to heal and repair mechanical devices. So in chapter 15, we, we begin with, with Dangerfield on the satellite and frustrated with the lack of progress and feeling he can't get any help from Stocksdale, he prepares for his retirement. So he, he makes kind of a closing statement, like a goodbye statement to the world. And then he basically creates a, a mixtape of classical music that will run, run forever on his channels, but he won't be a, the, the global disc jockey anymore. And it's right at this time, not long after he makes his announcement that that Hoppy completes his plan of taking over the body. You know, Hoppy has mastered his voice. He, he's kind of mastered a, the voice of Dangerfield as younger and healthier. So it sound, he sounds younger and healthier. In fact, Dangerfield by this point is, you know, kind of on his last legs, at least in his view. He seems to be dying. So it's, it's kind of a new and refreshed uh, Dangerfield that we get, but it's all Hoppy you know, pretending to be, to be Dangerfield. And so Hoppy is able to kind of eventually fulfill his plan, which is to, to undermine this force that's, that's unifying the world and, and trying to create a, a new kind of social order, one that Hoppy can't so easily dominate. It, it seems basically Hoppy's plan is to dominate as much of this world as possible. And the more that's changed, right, the less that survives from the old way, the better for his, his overall plan. Um, in a way, now I'm thinking about it, we're, we're back to this because Hoppy is obviously a post-human, not just because of his physical um, mutations, but he's got these, he's got all these powers, right? These, these telekinetic powers, he has psychic powers of various types. So he is, it's kind of back to the, the, the villainous post-human that we're used to seeing in, in Dick's fiction, especially in the 1950s stories. He, he hadn't written, he's kind of, a lot of his posthumans of the 60s are a little bit more banal, but you know he still has this idea that there is the, the very dangerous posthuman, the one who can't be tamed by society. And on the next novel we're going to read, The Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, precogs become you know, more that very banal adjunct to the, to the main system, not a, not a significant threat to it. But, but Hoppy is. He's the throwback to kind of the golden man almost. Now, Bill and Eddie's response to this, they talk about Dangerfield, and Bill continually warns Eddie about the danger that Hoppy presents. And in fact, Bill knows this because he's communing with the dead. He's talking to Dr. Bluthgel, for instance. Here's something Bill says. Now, Bill talks to Eddie, of course, telepathically, but he says, because Mr. Bluthgel says so, he's down below now, but he can still see what's going on above. He can't do anything, and he's mad. He still knows all about us. He hates Hoppy because Hoppy mashed him. So with that, Eddie and, and Bill commit to doing something, whatever they can, to about Hoppy. So these little seven-year-old children become the, the heroes of the tales, in a way. So by now, Bonnie Keller has left with Stuart McConchie, and they've gone off to the Hardys. So she's kind of going to the city. Remember, Stuart and the Hardys are in a more urban area. And, you know, it's by post-war standards, post-emergency standards, it's, it's a big city. Right. I remember Stuart was warned, don't go to the countryside, don't go to West Marin because the people there won't like you because you're, you're, you're black, you know, you'll be more accepted in the city. Um, but anyways, Bonnie goes with them because she wants to, to leave. And they're listening to the Dangerfield broadcast, which of course by now has been hijacked by, by Hoppy. And Bonnie also realizes, just as her children had realized, that Hoppy you know, has 
has gained this power and she starts to really worry and think that she needs to find a new place for herself, a place that's not going to be under the control of, of Hoppy. She thinks Hoppy's going to become basically a, a tin pot dictator of sorts. Bonnie then decides that she wants to go with Andrew Gill to the south. And the way Bonnie's story ends up, there's a little bit more to it, but essentially she, she finds her release by, by traveling to a new location with and, and kind of committing to a relationship. And the person she picks is, is the first person we saw her have sex with back in chapter six or whatever, and that was that's Andrew Gill. And, you know, they've had an on and off, on again, off again relationship since then, it seems. And, of course, Gill is the, the father of, of, of her children. Um, so they decide they just want to go south and get away from it. With his powers, there's nothing that are going to be able to stop Hoppy from becoming a dictator. As chapter 15 ends, we're, we're reunited with uh, Bill Keller and what they're doing. And Hoppy, realizing Bill is a threat, and he's kind of known this since earlier in the novel, draws Bill out of Eddie and actually draws this little fetus child thing out of Eddie's body and, you know, throws him on the ground. So he's going to basically suffocate to death not being in, in Eddie anymore. Bill, though, is able to use his own abilities. And it's, it's interesting how Hoppy and Bill's abilities seem to model each other. I mean, they're both diminutive figures. You know, there's even a scene in the next chapter where you got the Fulcomaclis, which is Hoppy in a... Homomachus, or I'm not sure how these are pronounced, but homomachus, which is the little fetus child, and the two words get, you know, thrown about back and forth in the same chapter, and they have a lot of similar powers uh, to use their mind, to communicate, to tr transplant their consciousness, and things like that. Now, Bill's in great danger for his life at this point, being drawn out of Eddie, but he's eventually able to talk to an owl and get an owl to eat him whole, and he's able to then travel with the owl they have to expel him later on so he this chapter ends with basically him inside an owl traveling flying he's able to fly in the belly of an owl so then that just leaves chapter 16 the final chapter of the novel we don't actually see the final confrontation between bill and hoppy the owl apparently takes bill bill's little body to hoppy at one point, Bill was able to communicate with the owl, and he gets expelled. And he actually, the last we see him, he's kind of like rolling uh, to get towards to get to Hoppy. Now, sometime later, uh, Stockstill enters in and to meet with Hoppy. And I think that he's going to like continue the psychotherapy sessions with Dangerfield and whatever. And he learns very quickly that Hoppy's not Hoppy, that someone else has taken over Hoppy's mind. And in fact, it's none other than Bill. Bill is learning how to use the little mechanical device. He's quite happy and content in Hoppy's body. Hoppy's mind, meanwhile, has been transplanted to Bill. And so he's slowly dying as this weird little fetus thing. So Bill has triumphed in some way in the psychic duel with, with Hoppy. Although it's all done off screen, we don't really get a, a good window into that. I don't know why. It, it's, it seems the kind of thing Dick would like to write, but he, I don't know if he was just running out of time or space and he just wanted to, to move on. Uh, so Bill is then another character who is now eager to start a new life. He, he's broken free. He's, he's been given, he's given birth, something he's been obsessed with for, for a while. He's got free of Eddie. He's now able to find a body he can use in Hoppy and a body that he can explore and use, and, and he's quite excited about that. So Bill's character arc ends with liberation. And that's what we hope for a lot of our characters. Bonnie, this is of course 
also seeking out liberation. And for her, it's going to be to move to a new place, basically to seek out her own kind of frontier. I, I think throughout the novel, there's this idea of, of the war itself being kind of the remaking of, of frontier conditions, right? This rebuilding of civilization and all that. And how it's an opportunity to do something new with, with ourselves. And some characters do it more than others. And Bonnie is a character who, by this point in the story, realizes that she's really got to, to move on. Uh, Bill's done it. Eddie has, in a way, done that by, you know, detaching herself from, from her brother. She's she's grown up in other ways too, and how she understands her mother and father's relationship and things like that. Another character who who finally is able to kind of get on with his life and get a new perspective on life is is Stocksdale and Dangerfield. Dangerfield accepts Stocksdale's advice that he accept psychotherapy rather than medical treatment, that his problems are psychosomatic. And Stocksdale begins, you know, doing these psychotherapy sessions and these become something that will be aired on Earth. So it'll be kind of a public record and it'll be something, some way for Stocksdale to, to offer therapeutic advice, I guess, to a broader audience. Now, for someone, a character, or for a writer who is so often focused on the negative aspect of the psychotherapist-patient relationship, we have a good one here. And I, I think it parallels the media in a way, like, in most of Dick's novels, the media is not something presented in a very attractive way. Here with Dangerfield, we're given a kind of a new, fresh um, type of media. And the same thing with psychotherapy. And at one point, Dangerfield says, Oh, heck, I'm the one who's helping you, Doc. You know that deep down in your unconscious. You need to feel you're doing something worthwhile again, don't you? When, when do you first remember ever having that feeling? Just lie there supine and I'll do the rest from here. You realize, of course, that I'm recording this on tape. I'm going to play our silly conversation every night over New York. They love this intellectual stuff up that way. End quote. So it actually becomes a, a broader utility. Right? A psychotherapy for the whole, the whole nation or the whole, the whole world, potentially. And the final scene of the novel is in Bonnie and her looking forward to the future. And that also ends optimistically. Bonnie kind of moving on into the city and, and finding a life for herself self there. So we end up with a very, very, actually kind of beautiful, happy ending. It's not Dick, of course, has a lot of happy endings, but this is a novel that overall just makes you feel good about people. The characters generally are characters who are good. There are a few exceptions, but even the like Blaine and Hoppy are, are kind of well-developed characters. They're well-formed. You kind of understand where they're coming from. You These are characters who have struggles that you can relate to often and, and you know they all have them right Gil frustrated with his family life you know but finds the war a big opportunity for him not only to get free from his family but to start a new business and to become fairly wealthy and important in society Hoppy kind of has that same narrative arc Stuart's a character who just is stuck in a rut and needs to find a way to get out Bonnie is kind of in that way too you have uh, two siblings who are coming to know each other when they reach a certain age, which is a, another kind of common experience. I think with all these characters, there is something relatable to someone there. And I, I think that's one of the nice things about this story. And I think what I take away from this more than anything else is just the deep optimism about human nature and the potential of human community. Uh, even in the aftermath of a nuclear war. And it's so refreshing. Uh, even though it came back in the 60s, it feels refreshing because so many post-apocalyptic novels that we read 
you know, just focus on the worst aspects of, of human nature. And I don't really know the utility of that. I, I don't think we need any more reminders. You know, we've lived through the 20th century. We, we know what the worst of human nature is. Why do we have to drag that out in every time we, we try to imagine the future? Is, you know, there's, maybe there's things we can learn from that, but those lessons, I think, have been learned by and large, and we know them, and we have those warnings. I think it's time to then start to imagine a more optimistic future. It's, I feel the same way about dystopias. I think we've seen enough dystopias. I think we're due for a return to the utopia. I, I think what the solar punk writers are trying to do is, is very interesting. You know, we don't necessarily have to have a future of ecological devastation and the end of life. We, we can live in balance with nature. Our technology can be an emulate, an emulate nature more and more. That's, that's possible. We can learn from nature to create a more sustainable world. And why doesn't science fiction, you know, do that? I mean, certainly it, some of it does, but I think more of it does. And I think the kind of science fiction we see more and more on television and in films tends to promote the negative. And you come out of it feeling kind of dirty. And like, I actually don't see that much of the sci-fi on TV or the sci-fi films that come out just because I'm kind of bored of what I've been seeing. So if anyone has recommendations of works that I think give kind of what I'm looking for, a more optimistic vision of the future, please let me know. I would love to seek them out. I know there's a lot of sci-fi on Netflix and streaming services now, so maybe there's some gems in there. But I, I for one, am, 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 am done with literature focusing on the worst aspects of, of human nature. And, you know, I think it comes from an unlikely source. For such a pessimistic writer to write this optimistic tale, it's, it's really great. Um, so I don't know if there's much more to say about this novel in the terms of themes. I mean, there's, of course, the theme of psychotherapy and mental illness is there, as in virtually all of Dick's works. The theme of the, of the family and, you know, the, the future of the family adultery these are themes that are there the the conflict between childhood and adulthood is is here uh, mutation and post-humanism is here and we've seen that again and again in dick's work uh, the post-apocalyptic setting is not is also not new i don't think anywhere else has he looked in, into the actual event of a war and the aftermath as much detail usually we'll get like there was a war in the past and now it's like 100 years in the future and we have a new society built up here he's kind of really working on the, the direct aftermath of the war and how, how cultures start to rebuild themselves. Um, so it's all there. Very lot of common Philip Dick themes. So in that sense, it's not new, but the way it's presented here, I think, is really fresh and powerful and interesting. And I don't know, there's not that many problems with it. I, I think the, 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 how he deals with Chapter 4, if, if that's supposed to be an order, order, that's a big problem that... It's hard to look beyond, and I can't pick up and read this book anymore without being bothered by that and trying to wonder where this chapter really should be and why it's been screwed up and why so few people comment on this. I've, like, I haven't seen it mentioned in the Wikipedia entry. You know, the Library of America published it, this book. I don't know, I'll have to look to see if they fix it or they have a comment on it. But... Um, you know, if anyone has an answer to why Chapter 4 is out of, out of place, you know, let me know. I'll really be grateful for, for the answer. Maybe I'm missing something. That's certainly possible. That's a problem with it. I, I, think, I, I think one character I would like to know more about, some get kind of short treatment. I think George Keller is someone I would like to see more of. George Keller is kind of just there to be Bonnie's 
cuckold husband and he doesn't do that much in the story well I, I mean except for a few gripes and a few issues I, I, I really do recommend this this story I, I don't think it's one of the most commonly read of Dick's works it's probably somewhere in the middle I, I mean I don't know which ones are the most popular certainly the most popular things like Ubik and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Scanner Darkly things like that but this this one I think is is interesting and I think it fits in nicely with a lot of the themes he was working on in the mid 1960s, so it's not out of place. Um, all around a good novel, so I certainly recommend it. And if you have read Doctor Blood Bunny, if you have your own opinions or thoughts about this novel, please leave your comments below, and I will I'll get back to you. Uh, hopefully, you can also send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com, and I'll try to respond to you if you write me there. Um, so what's coming up? Well, the main thing coming up, I guess, is is the other novels of 1965. And I have, my notes are a bit contradictory here. I have one set of notes that says the next novel I should read is, is Lies, Inc. And the other that says it should be Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge. So I, I think it doesn't really matter if it was 65, 66 or, or whatever. So I, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and write down that we're going to do the Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge next. Then I think there's one story from 65 called, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but I'll put that up. And then I'll, I'll go jump into 1966. I think there's a two or three novels from 66 that we'll need to look at. One of those will be Lies, Inc. And then I think uh, The Crack in Space, perhaps. So we're, we're kind of halfway through the 60s, I guess. We've got a lot more novels to, and stories to, to look at before we get to the end of the 1960s, though. So... A lot more good stuff um, before we kind of turn a corner in the 70s. I, I think there's a real shift in the way Dick approaches things in the, in the 1970s and, and certainly in the early 80s until his death. So, um, but still, a lot of this wonderful 60s, wild, imaginative science fiction that we've, we've come to expect from, from Philip Dick. So, yeah. So, I'll, I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks for bearing with these, these longer episodes covering novels. I, I know they can, they can get kind of long, but um, I find it easier to do than, than breaking them up into a lot of small parts, given the kind of the other burdens I have in my life at the moment. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. Uh, leave your comments below, however you can. Write a review, send me an email, whatever, and... I look forward to coming back soon with my with my review of, of Three Stigmata.